Ready, Dave? We have liftoff. This is... That's what you wanted to do? Don't Let's Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants with your super spaced out... There's going to be a lot of outer space jokes. Jokes, I'm calling them. Spaced out uh, hosts. He's using quotes. Jordan Cooper, that's me, and... And I'm Dave Fox. Thank you for reminding me... And I'm going to use... What your name is. Land jokes, just to be contrarian. Well, the album is kind of about the land and the space, in a way. Well, I think we're off to a great start. So, wow, we've been gone a while. What's new with you? <laughs> I'm well, going to cut all this out. What's yeah. new with you, Dave? Tell me about your your interesting life. I guess we should pretend we didn't see each other yesterday. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> wow, Dave, you've grown, you've grown a beard. I did grow a beard. Yeah, why um, did you grow a beard? Please don't uh, You know, laziness. Laziness is a big motivator for most things I do. Have you noticed that I'm shaving all the time now? What part? My My, my, <laughs> my, my face. No. Because I used to have like hair on my face all the time out of laziness, but because, so I sleep with tape over my mouth like a hostage uh, to encourage nasal breathing. And it doesn't... Wow. (laughs) You know, we said we were going to jump right into uh, (laughs) the album review. Well, Chrissy likes it. Uh, not your face. She likes the beard. She she encouraged me to keep growing it. And everyone's wearing a mask these days. Yeah. So I could just do it in secret, which I've been doing. That's This is proof that this is recorded this year. During the pandemic. <laughs> we didn't record this three years yeah. ago. And, uh, you know, it seems to be a big hit, <laughs> I have to say. So you might be looking at a new Dave. Okay. So... <laughs> Wait a minute. I wasn't finished. <laughs> yeah. So where are we in They Might Be Giants' career? Flood comes out, right? It's a big success. It's a huge success. It's a smash. I'm going to call it a smash. They tore England. They tore, they tore the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And that might have inspired them to make an album called Apollo 18. So what's interesting, if you look at the, their tour dates, is like there's no tour dates in 1991, which is really weird. And I've always wondered if that's accurate. Or if there's just like, we don't have every single date ever. We have, we certainly have a lot though. It seems um, based in interviews and stuff, they they really took a lot of 91 to make Apollo 18. Mm-hmm. Like they were, they were really like in the studio. Well, I mean, there's 38 tracks. So. Thir- yeah, 38 tracks. Takes time. Yes, that does take time. I should know because it takes me 10 years to do like five tracks yeah. of, of music. <laughs> they got to follow up the big album. But Dave, they're... Hi. They they don't they don't want they you don't sound sad. <laughs> they don't want to be produced by an, anyone. Yes, they want to do it all themselves. I read that. Yeah, <laughs> I just know it because I'm a genius. Uh, there might be Judge Apollo 18. This is the, this is the first one you guys uh, produce yourself. That's absolutely right. We we produced the other some tracks on our last album, but we did the whole yeah. schmear this time. Yeah, well, we do a lot of stuff with you know the technical cheating stuff. You know the drum machines and the whole army <laughs> of synthesizers, the robots. Yeah. You know, we uh, import some of uh, Kraftwerk's electronics. Yeah, these things would be like like older technology, but nobody uses it anymore, and it's really convenient, like the fuzz boxes and, and yeah. Moog synthesizers. That's, mm-hmm. that's older stuff, but it's... Well, think, we're, we're older stuff, too. Yeah. Steve, nobody knows We're that. damaged goods. Are you really? We're from the 70s. <laughs> okay. We're your ancient friends from the 70s. You're right? back! Now, you know, I don't want to... I'm not going to play a clip from gigantic DVD features, because I don't know, for some reason that feels like weird to me. 
because like you could buy the DVD or something. But um, there is a segment where the their Electra representative uh, she tries to get Elvis Costello to produce, or she yeah. seems to have successfully acquired Elvis Costello to produce Hero Apollo to Flans. Hero to Flans, uh, I, I think to Linnell also, but it seems like mostly to Flansburg. This apparently really upset the band mm -hmm. because they thought they'd be too nervous during it, right. during that that production. And I can imagine it because while I've had fantasies about like Flansburg producing me because yeah, he what likes if my music, produce your album. I think it would it would be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to argue with someone I admire. I don't want to feel stressed out or have someone say, oh, that wasn't a good take, yeah. do it again. Or, you know, who knows what his production style what is like. What makes you think he'd say that? Maybe he'd say every take was great. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's bad too, though. See, that's a bad, you know. Well, maybe he meant it. Producing is really hard. It really, you have to be a psychologist to the band. And often it's like a group of crazy people. It's yeah. funny, I just read the... Um, Chris France, the drummer from Talking Heads. I read his book and there's a bit about producing bands in there, which apparently he did. But there's one crazy chapter where they, they produced this one band that was just full of drug addicts and violent, crazy people. And it yeah. was just like pages and pages of like, he was like drunk, passed out on the floor and doing coke and blah, blah, blah. And we had to that call the hospital. Above your pay grade yeah. if you're a producer. So they produced the album themselves, and yeah. I, I wanted to talk a lot with you about how the album feels and sounds, because it really sounds like they produced it themselves. And I mean that mm. in both like positive and po potentially negative ways, though neg not negative might be too strong a word. I know it was recorded in a, a fancy studio, which I want, which I have specifics about actually. But like it, it kind of almost they're has, called specs in the almost, business, and they might well. So they might be giants have talked a lot about how like Apollo 18 is their big like MIDI album. Mm -hmm. It's full of samplers. It's full of MIDI. They said they used the Casio FZ1, which they Flansburg said was the capitalized the sound making device of Apollo 18. So and they also used that in a Flood, and we actually, if you go back to our Flood episode part one, we talked a bit about that. So I'm not going to repeat it. But it's just a keyboard that you record stuff in and then sample like, hey, 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 hey. See, what I was thinking, and yeah. you might disagree with this, is I remember us listening to this album and thinking the bass and the drums sounded almost like real bass and drums. Yeah. Well, I wanted your opinion on that because I think, you know, that informed their opinion to get a band eventually. Because mm -hmm. at least to my ear at the time, like the bass especially was sounding almost like a real bass. Yeah. I don't think they were trying to do crazy sampled sounding drums. No. Nope. They had a lot of life to them. Like, what would a real drummer do? Yeah, we. I actually do remember talking about this with you. And this this album... I, 30 years ago, yeah. yes. <laughs> this album... So the drums... And we'll point this out in certain specific songs too. This album has like a lot of reverb on yeah. the drums. Mm -hmm. And to me, what reverb on drums implies is is like meant to fool your brain into thinking that drums were recorded in a space, mm -hmm. right? And like when you listen to the first album, there's like, unless Very dry. it's- Yeah, unless it's Puppet Head, the reverb on the drums is extremely non-existent or subtle and mm -hmm. it's, it's meant to sound fake. But on this album, especially in like I Pound or My and a couple other songs, yeah. the drums are very natural sounding. They're loose, baby. They're loose and there's um there's an atmosphere to them. And same with the vocals and and the bass too. So what I heard, it does mention online that like Flansburg played bass on a bunch of songs. Now I don't know if that means he played bass on the whole album or if some of it's synth bass, but like the in either case, whatever way they got the bass sound, it's like very real and very it's more subtle than on the other. It's not going like the bong 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 right. bong. <laughs> right. Know? It's not popping. Yeah, it's it's like a subtle understated it has a bass. Warmth to it. 
Yeah. So the production of this album is has those qualities. But to me, in a, in a way, I don't know if it's an EQ thing. Like it's all like there's no middle or something. I don't know. There's something about the sound of this album that's very like if you put on John Henry after mm-hmm. this, after Apollo 18, to me, it's almost like a shock, mm-hmm. not just because of the live band, but even their voices. Like there's like more warmth yeah. to the overall sound and everything's beefier. I think beefier is that word is going <laughs> to come up a lot in our John Henry talks. Whereas Apollo 18, it, it does kind of have like a, there's a bit of a thin quality to it. Agreed. And it's funny because one time I, I, I did this thing, I was driving and I was listening to, I think I was listening to Join Us and I was fiddling around with the EQ in my car mm-hmm. and I turned the bass all the way down. The coupe mobile, we call it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's as damaged on the outside as <laughs> I am yeah. on the inside. So I was fiddling around with the bass while listening to Join Us, and I turned it all the way down, and I was like, holy shit, this sounds like their first album now. Interesting. <laughs> like, it really made it sound like 80s, they might be giants, or early 90s, they might be giants. While this album does have, you know, I like the way it sounds. Like, I would kill for an yeah. album of mine to sound like this. I do think I can hear a little bit of limitations there in terms mm-hmm. of... It feels a little bit like it's a, a little in a box to me, like a little, like, not quite busting out sonically okay but i do love it like don't get me wrong i love jordan hates apollo 18 (laughs) well yeah well let's got it let's talk generally i'll ask you dave like what what are your first impressions of apollo 18 third favorite album third after i know i know what the other two are i think Um, i'm sure our listeners do at this point too so we don't have to keep it yeah do you remember the first time you heard it or it's possible this is the first album that i bought Mm. there's a high possibility it's it's Me all too, maybe. garbled in my brain, yeah. but I know where I got flood, which was we talked about that mm-hmm. a long time ago. Is that our first episode? Somewhere is arounds there. Yeah, and you know that was at Generation Records, and that's where Daniel said first half's great, second half, eh. <laughs> yeah. John Henry was given. If to you want to complain to Daniel, his email is. <laughs> yeah, his DMs are wide open. John Henry was given to me by a friend. I remember distinctly. Joe Henry. Yeah, I distinctly remember then. Uh, the earlier years, that was actually Academy Records in New York. Yes. Um, so that only leaves... R.I.P., by the way, to like almost everything. every record store <laughs> we're mentioning. Yeah. I, I actually went by, R.I.P. to stores. Yeah. I, well, this was even pre-pandemic. All the yeah. record stores were, were basically R.I.P. to America. I passed by this uh, this block that Dave used to play shows on all the time. It's also where which, Mer- Mercury Lounge which was. Block the Continental. Was oh, sure. It's gone. <laughs> the, the block is the gone? The block is gone. It's a Just construction site. Up. They like demolished the whole building yeah. there. It's disturbing. Uh, maybe something awesome and new will, will go there, but it'll probably be a bank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is great because I need to take out some cash. I hope it's a super McDonald's. <laughs> but that only leaves Apollo 18 and Factory Showroom. And I feel like I wouldn't Though I I love Factory Showroom, I feel like more Spoilers. of the songs. Well, I like they might be giants. What? Um, I feel like more of the songs I wanted to hear over and over would have been on Apollo eighteen. Mm. So I'm and I, I totally there's something addictive to yes. me about Apollo eighteen. I can play it nonstop. In, in not like there's something about it. It just cycles really well. I also think that being a visual person, the cover for Apollo eighteen was probably a lot more alluring to me than mm. the cover to Factory Showroom. So <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it was definitely one of the earliest They Might Be Giants albums I purchased, if not the first one. Mm. I think there's a there's definitely a mood and a feel to the whole album. Yeah, there's a little bit of a darkness in it. 
to me, to my ear. For me, there's a there's a sadness, uh, but I, I yeah. have so, so well, many sadness, darkness. thoughts to, to say about, about certain yeah. things. So wait, so there's a couple points I want to hit. So oh, there's so much to talk about at the start. We might not get to too many songs, folks. Okay, so you're you're you remember like playing it over and over. I, I have a similar memory. You know, I just remember like having it on a loop basically mm-hmm. because there's something about like spacesuit ends and you just want mo- as great an ending yeah. as it is, you want more. It's also a beginning. <laughs> yeah, and then it would just go right back to dig my grave. I remember having mm-hmm. it on my disc man just on a loop over and over. And it's weird cuz there's 38 tracks. Yeah. It goes by the album goes by really fast. Well, like, some it's of like the songs 45 are, minutes. Yeah. Some of the songs are pretty short. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, aside from fingertips. Even yeah, no. Um, but there, yeah, there's something. Don't the, scoff at me like that. The you album, know what I mean. the album just like whizzes by. Yeah. It's really a weird uh, experience. It's like time changes. So a few things. One, I found this one. I just want to get this clip in here. I found this one clip. I, I, don't, I can't tell if Flansburg's joking, but he mentions that they were full of tension while really? recording Apollo 18. But he, it might be a joke. L- let me just like double check that. So ladies and gentlemen, this is the uh, the portion of the show where we perform an entire album in its entirety. It is physically impossible for us to recreate the tension we were feeling in 1992 when Apollo 18 was was released, but fortunately, all those people in our lives are out of our lives. So, uh... So that that doesn't quite seem like a joke. Do you think he's talking about Electra people? Yeah, probably. I see. I thought their relationship with Electra didn't sour until John Henry, really. Well, you're already saying that they wanted to produce themselves and they wanted to put a producer in there. Yeah, I feel bad for... Um, the foundations were getting shaky, Jordan. So I thought that was interesting and we can really only speculate. Because it's funny because whatever tensions they say, most of, it never really shows up on an album. The albums are yeah. always bursting with creativity. Flavor. And, and joy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fruit, fruity country, flavor. Country freshness. I wanted to talk a bit about... So they recorded Apollo 18 at The Magic Shop. And yeah. The Magic Shop is yet another studio that I interned at, just like I interned at, at Dubway, who, where they recorded their first album. You really at. bounced around. I bounced around. This was not intentional. I didn't pick these places. Um, but so I interned at The Magic Shop for like a, a wonderful like five weeks, maybe. Um, I just, I really didn't have a great experience there. I was mostly, an, I was essentially an and I'm not doing this to trash the magic shop, which doesn't exist anymore, which makes me sad because they were a legendary place. So I was essentially an unpaid receptionist <laughs> as, instead of really an intern that was learning things. Um, I would answer the phones mainly and sit at this front desk. Um, I have a few wacky stories from there, which is <laughs> Andrew WK made an album while I was there. And uh, he made out with his, some girl in front of me for like 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes. As if I just wasn't there. It was really uncomfortable. Well, to him, you weren't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But I did get to hear him improvising on a piano for like an hour, and that Mm. was kind of cool. He's a really good piano player. I don't know if anyone knows that. Uh, Probably people who follow his stuff know that, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, Another thing, do you know that band Mo? Just M-O-E? Yeah, with a period. Uh, No, with a period. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some people might know them, but they were also recording an album there. And I had to hear... Was Curly and Larry there too? (laughs) I had to hear the lead singer guy record this song that goes something like, I've had enough, fuck a duck. Wow. (laughs) I had to hear him say that horrible lyric. It must have been like 80 takes. And just him going, fuck a duck. (laughs) 
how many millions and of dollars is he worth? I know. I was just like, oh my God. And as someone like me, who's like a very bitter, jealous person, I'm like, I'm such a better songwriter than this. And I'm a, at the receptionist desk. Ironic. I eventually got fired because they were like, oh, you didn't, you weren't like being aggressive enough with trying to learn. Like mm -hmm. you should have walked into the studio and observed. And I was like, I thought I'd be fired for doing that. <laughs> like I, they told me to answer the phones. Yeah, I don't think receptionists are allowed to do that. No, it's it's weird because not to get on a tangent, but it's like, I think about this a lot where it's like, yeah, sure. In general, I'm a, when I'm at a job, I'm pretty passive and kind of nervous in, you, all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. That's why I hate having jobs. But like, you expected me to just be like, I'm just going to walk in on this million dollar session and watch a famous person do vocal. Like, I think what they expect you to do is walk in and say, hold on a second, boys. Let me show you how it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they recorded it at the Magic Shop. It's, it is a really great studio. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's cool. It's got like an anonymous door. Like you can't find it unless you know where to go. There's no sign. It's like a, is that why it's the Magic Shop? It's like a gray door. I think it's the Magic Shop because fucking Apollo 18 was made there. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Sincerely. That's a sincere... Complimentary. Com it's a real thought of mine, man. That's real. You know what not I'm saying, man? Not because all those uh, magicians died there. Yeah. <laughs> they still haunt it. So, Dave, speaking of the magic shop, this is something I've been very excited about. Yeah. Joining us on these Apollo 18 episodes, uh, we spoke to Edward Douglas. We sure did, Jordan. And if you look in your Apollo 18 booklet, listen to this. That's That's it. Um, that was very grating. Edward Douglas is named as second engineer on Apollo 18. So he was there. He was there the whole time. And he's got actual factual stories. Actual to tell factual. You. <laughs> they call him Edward Actual Factual Douglas. So this is how it's going to work. We are going to just be cutting to an interview we did with him that I'm going to be dispersing throughout our Apollo 18 song discussions. So first, uh, right now, we're going to hear him talk about working at the Magic Shop and the overall Apollo 18 vibe, you know, the whole setup for that album. But then he's going to come in, talk about Dig My Grave, I Palinger My, etc. Each and every song. Each and every song, he had something to say about the the making of it. And it was great. And it was really interesting. And so, we thank him. Uh, we did that. We did the interview over Skype. Uh, so you'll hear the sound quality change. Uh, don't be scared. So let's hear from Edward about how the Apollo 18 sessions were set up at the Magic Shop. We are here with Edward Douglas. Is that Edward Douglas the fourth? Okay, that's, that's what it says. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it's not Edward Douglas the Fourth. I have Edward Douglas the First. That was that was a joke that someone, <laughs> one of the Johns, decided to make when they did the credits. Oh my god! <laughs> and I don't, think I, I don't think I even knew about it until the record came out, and I was like, "Oh, that's pretty funny." This is one of me and Dave's favorite albums. I'm speaking for Dave. Yeah, hi. <laughs> but that's kind of what the show is: is I speak for Dave. Uh, Dave confirms or denies. Yes. I'll start when I moved to New York in 1987. Uh, it was January. Um, as, as you probably know, I'm also of an engineering background. Went to the school called uh, the Institute of Audio Research mm. in uh, in the village. And uh, the very first day of class, my teacher was this guy named Alex Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S. And he pulled out a copy of the Village Voice and said, hey, I worked with this band. They might be giants. So this is like literally my first 
you know, knowledge of them at all. But I was just, I was just working in, uh, I worked at a studio called 39th Street Music for a while. And then uh, I went over to the magic shop and I, I, I met Steve Rosenthal, the owner of the magic shop. Yeah. Uh, at, the, at the previous studio. And he told me he was, he was opening this new studio. And he was interested in having me come over and, and be, you know, an assistant engineer there. The studio opened in 1989. I, I started there in like 1990. And as with most studios, it was, it was kind of slow at first. But then in 1991, there were kind of two fairly big artists working there. One was Lou Reed, who, who recorded his Magic and Lost record there. And the other one was Suzanne Vega. And apparently she is, is or was friends with John Flansburg. Oh. So she recommended the studio to him. He came by to check it out. I ended up on the session because I was sort of a MIDI guy at the time. I was doing a lot of, like, you know, MIDI stuff. This is, again, this is 91. Mm-hmm. Uh, digital, digital audio was not a, a thing at that time. It wasn't like, you know, maybe a few people had, like, some two-track recording on their computers, but it wasn't anything like today where you can do, like, 50, 60, 70 tracks on your computer. Yeah. <laughs> so it was still, like, there was still pretty early days of that. I mean, MIDI, MIDI was had been around, obviously, for a while at that point. Uh, and we knew that they were going to be bringing in their computer and laying down a bunch of tracks. And another reason they came there is because the Magic Shop had just got a Sony 3324 digital recorder. You know, but you know, back then there were all the analog recorders, these huge machines with two-inch tape. Yeah. This was also a huge machine. I believe I think it did 24 tracks digital, but there was something about digital back then was still fairly, you know, novel and pretty like, oh, you know, it sounds great and cleaner and you don't have a you know tape hiss which is not wasn't ever really an issue i mean well now people put fake tape hiss on their oh i, oh, I believe it i believe it yeah i mean there's this, so this is fairly early days of you know it wasn't early days of, of midi and stuff like that but it was still like the digital recorder was still pretty you know hip and happening whatever but anyway so they came in there the, the magic shop had a great neve console which is a very kind of warm console it was great you know they, we recorded a lot of like live drums and live bands there um, up to that point, and, and part of it was the, the combination of like the Neve and the, just the general vibe of the place. And uh, yeah, so, so they basically they booked time, and basically the idea was they were going to do, you know, three to four weeks. I don't remember the, all the details, but it was like three to four weeks of recording, and then they have a month off, and they come back for another month and do another three to four weeks of recording, mm-hmm. month off, and then another three to four weeks. And then generally what they were doing in between, so they basically they write some songs, come in, record them. And then they, I think, I think they went and mixed them at that point in, in between. Oh, wow. What was the atmosphere of, of them during, you know, while making that record? Like, or even the difference between John Flansbury and John Lell was like, was it a relaxed atmosphere? Was it fun? Was it s- stressful or everything? Kind of everything. You know, it's really weird. I, I've, I've, over the years, I've run into people who say they like They Might Be Giants. And I said, oh, I worked on this record. And they always ask, oh, what was it like? Yeah. And <laughs> Guilty. But I've heard you talk about this on the show, how people, uh, they, they are serious musicians and songwriters. Mm-hmm. They, write, they write funny, funny songs and do funny stuff. But like, I, I kind of created this mental image in my head that people think that like John Linnell is like riding on a bicycle playing clarinet around a microphone. <laughs> They're very serious about recording. They were there to, to, to rec- make the record. There was not a lot of like fooling around downtime. Mm-hmm. So I was the second engineer. This guy Paul Angeli. Yeah, he he was he was the first engineer. He was a sound guy for many years before that. So when they decided to produce this new record themselves, they brought him on to record it. And John Flansburg would get more stress than John Linnell, I would say. <laughs> John Linnell was pretty laid back. Yeah. But I mean, generally they they worked very hard. The recording sessions always started with the computer, which I believe was an Atari at the time. It's and, on Atari. And, wow. Yeah, and he'd have a he'd have a sampler, 
Uh, they, they had like one or two samplers and a couple synths. I don't think they used much of the synths there. They had their, their own, they bought the stuff from their own studio in. So, so we laid down all the tracks that they had sequenced before, which was like most of the bass and drums. Oh, wow. So they did that before even coming into the studio. It was all sequenced. And then they brought in their gear. And then we would lay it down to the, to the digital 24 track. So the sessions would always start with like getting, get, you know, getting everything they had on the, se- the sequence onto tape. That's kind of like how a normal band would rehearse everything before coming in. Like a drummer would know his parts already, but with They Might Be Giants, it's that the computer knew its parts already. Does that make yeah. sense? Okay. Also wanted to ask, uh, just to, for clarification, like what, what does a second engineer do on like a very literal sense in the studio? Like what are you doing all day? It's a lot of setup. It's a lot of just, you know, making sure that the engineer and the, and the musicians, you know, have whatever they need. I mean, there, there have been a few sessions where I was like, I would actually run the tape machine and I would actually, like, you know, record, hit the record and punch in and all that stuff. Some of them, some of them, I just set everything up and was there in case they needed, needed anything else. And it was like, it was, a pretty, it was a pretty laid back session. It was sort of like, again, like they brought in their stuff, we recorded it. And then, then the next, you know, week or two, we'd be doing overdubs and it'd be like vocals and saxes and guitar and, you know, the things like that. I mean, it's very, it was very straight ahead. Like, I know you guys have a lot of questions about what the songs mean and blah, that kind of stuff. Oh, well, you don't have to worry about that unless they literally said, told you. None of that stuff's ever discussed. When you're making a record, yeah, you know, I was wondering. Get, get stuff on tape, get what you need to get done. <laughs> you know, they, there's, no, no, there's no long conversations about, like, what this means or whatever. Yeah, that's what we've heard. I don't even know if each other know what their songs mean. Yeah. If John Flansburg knows what John Linnell's songs mean and vice versa. Like, I actually wonder that. Yeah, there, there's this mystery thing because they, they had been working on their songs on their own before they came to the studio. Yeah. And there's a couple songs on this record where you can see a lot of like them coming together and like 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 John Linnell will do a lot of cool stuff on the Flan songs and vice versa. But uh, then there's some songs which is literally like you'd have to really listen to, to hear anything John Linnell was doing. Mm-hmm. And, but but John John Linnell would be there but he wouldn't necessarily say anything when Flans was working on stuff. And, and but I think Flans is a little more vocal about like, you know, trying different things. The other interviews we've done, they all, they're so consistent. They're all just like, Flansburg knows what he wants. He's always talking. He's always telling everyone what to do and blah, blah, blah. And Linnell is very, just kind of more like the gen- the quiet genius in the back. And he'll, he speaks up if something's kind of wrong. Sure. But, you know, like... Like, like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say they're both geniuses in some way. It's just the Flansburg is a little more like experimental. He'll, he'll do a lot of like, mm. a lot of the crazier things on the record, you know, was his involvement with it. But um, I'll give you an example of, this is the most amount of stress that we had on the sessions. So they would be there, I think, Monday through Friday from 10 to 5. So it was very, mm. not long sessions or anything. They had very specific times. But if we were starting at 10 a.m., I'd probably get there like, you know, 9.30 or maybe set up. Paul would get there, you know, 9.45 a little early. We'd hang out a little bit and just talk whatever but a lot of times at 9 45 john flansburg would be sitting down in the studio with his guitar in his lap already tuned ready to start recording <laughs> and, wow. and it, it'd be it'd be like me and paul would be like okay he knows we don't start till 10 right what's what's he doing in there already so that's that's like the that's like the most stressful that i remember anything from the sessions was just like the fact that flans would always be there like way early that's really interesting yeah i can understand that like even like for this, I've just I've been sitting here for like an hour, just like staring at the computer. And like, I just sauntered in whenever I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so I totally get that. 
Can, can you think of any things that didn't make it onto the album? Like, I don't know, any anything that just like, oh, we just spent a bunch of time on this thing and like... Yeah, then it was scrapped. Yeah, never mind. Anything like well, that. Well, there's, there's some specific stuff about fingertips that I'll, I'll, I'll save oh, okay. for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great, awesome. We did hang out a little bit afterwards. The one thing I'll always remember is that I saw uh, Terminator 2 with Paul and the Johns. <laughs> and we, we got we, and we got to the movie movie theater on the later side. So we're all sitting like in the second row of the movie. Oh no. And I what that. I remember from Terminator Two, and which was my first viewing of it, it was it was nineteen ninety one. It was at the very, very ending, there was something about that last monologue and we were all cracking up. We were all like, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> it was all it was like it was like we, we spent a day in the studio and we were all pretty like, you know, Wound up, I'm sure, but it was just uh, that's that's one thing I just remember seeing T2 with the with the Johns. I think it's like Linda Hamilton talking about hope yeah. or something. Or some bullshit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Johns were not a fan of T uh, Terminator Two or T2 as we call it. T2 and the T2, biz. Yeah, no, yeah. no, they weren't. They, I don't know if they weren't a fan. It was, they just found it very amusing. <laughs> so that's really funny. So it was quite at the Magic Shop. Uh, Flansburg mentioned they they used for the drums. They used the Roland R8, mm-hmm. which is a, a drum machine that's very popular. I wanted to play a little clip of the Roland R8 because this is so. This is like a sample thing that comes with the Roland R8. So this is what made all the drum sounds in Apollo 18. All Check right. this out, Dave. Someday, mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that's the Roland R8. Um, nice. So let's talk about the, you mentioned the album art. I think we should talk about that. I did. Well, I, I love it. It's incredibly, it's really memorable and interesting. Like you qu- kind of don't forget it once you look at it. I think it invokes feelings. Yeah. It's it's weird because it's, I mean, they're really good at this usually, but I feel like an Apollo yeah. especially is like, this is the album. It's animals in outer space. Mm-hmm. Like that's like yeah. so many songs on the album. It, it's the starkness. Yeah. There's also like a, let's, let's look at it. And like the darkness. In front of me. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Cause it's funny. Cause you assume it's outer space, but it's not like there's stars, right? It's like yeah. you assume it's outer space. Cause there's a little like satellite thing yeah, or like, like all the way in the back. That to me looks like just a regular ship. At a distance, mm. until you really inspect it. Yeah, interesting. Um, Which I, tr- I thought it was. I tried finding this art, like, because mm-hmm. it seems like it's like uh, art that they got from somewhere, not mm-hmm. that they got someone to do. But I couldn't, uh-huh. I couldn't find it anywhere. All it says, yeah, you know, there's there's credits for the photos inside, and there's some design credits. Like it says Barbara Lip, who, who we we talked about in a past episode. She worked on Flood too. The flood logo. A bunch of people did like art for it, but in terms of the cover, there's like no information. And if you if you do Google like whale octopus fighting, like there's a lot of artistic interpretations of that that yeah. don't don't stem from they might be giants. So the the reason is because that's apparently like a very like iconic thing that happens in the animal kingdom, which is that whales and squids yeah. fight a lot. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, isn't that like from I don't know, like Scrimshaw and like old. What's uh, that? You know, when uh, Scrimshaw... Is that the new horror franchise? <laughs> Scrimshaw. Scrimshaw is uh, carving on, like, um, ivory. You know, like sailors and people that were out at sea for a very long time, they would whittle and they would carve. And I feel like I've seen, you know, artwork of whales and squids fighting on that, or at least, you know, it would make sense that they were looking at some kind of ocean life. Sperm whale versus giant squid on, like, a. it looks like it's carved, yeah, like on a just shell or a bone or something. Tusk. It's really interesting. Yeah, so when you when you look up squ- so maybe that's what it's from squids and whales. There's just so many. There's sculptures. There's tons of stuff. One interesting note: Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End. It's a, a book he wrote, and there is a section 
in that about hiding in a, like someone hides in a giant sculpture of a squid and whale fighting mm-hmm. and he goes in a rocket ship. Like the, so a squid and a whale sculpture are put in a ship that goes to outer space. That sounds ridiculous. So, <laughs> so that could have been an inspiration, yeah. but maybe not. But it, it's something that a lot of fans uh, wondered about, especially on the old news group and Looks stuff. Looks like we have an old fashioned mystery on our hands, huh? Then there's the, the title Apollo 18, which they've, they've discussed a few times. The new They Might Be Giants album is called Apollo 18. The last official Apollo flight was 17, I guess. Right. Yeah. There have been no... It's been a while. There are no... I mean, Apollo is, like, not a program anymore, right? Well... You guys have revitalized it. I mean, is NASA aware of the fact that uh, that you've done this? Um, Yeah, we warned them about it. (laughs) (laughs) What what's the what's the concept here? Well, you know, we just th- sort of thought it would, you know, this is kind of our our poor substitute for a moon mission. You know, we feel that music should be an adventure, and what better adventure than taking people out into thinking that it's a rocket ship to the moon? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Would you would, if you if you got the opportunity, would you do that? Would you take a we, rocket? We discussed this among the band, and yeah. I'm I'm ready. Count me in. And yeah. John Feinberg, our, our new drummer, is ready as well. So. Okay. Well, you guys Feinberg and Flansburg would be in the... But I think John, John Linnell is reluctant to go. I'm, I'm, I'll be on the, uh, on the ground watching the TV, I think. Out an accordion sound in zero gravity. Watching the TV version. Really bad. <laughs> well, there was no Apollo 18, right? No, ex- unless it's you a count a, a very badly reviewed horror movie from a few years ago. Oh, <laughs> that I, I remember. I don't. <laughs> there's, there's a horror movie. It's a found footage. Remember that craze? Found footage yeah. horror movie about astronauts going on the Apollo 18 mission. And it, they get cool killed by some alien on the moon or something. And um, got really badly reviewed. But I remember when it came out, the news group and other places were just like, is this a They Might Be Giants reference Funded movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, is there going to be a reference? It's like, no. Mm. Not that I wasn't tempted to watch it just because of the title. Yeah, there was Apollo 17 was the last one. Mm. And then... Then they gave up on space. <laughs> they just said, oh, there's nothing out there. We found it all. The real gold is down below. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, How can we never go down? So in terms of the, the album art, it says... One of the big inspirations was, so I think they already got the idea to do like an outer space themed uh, album Mm. uh, or not that the album is outer space themed, though it kind of is. Mm. That's the visuals they wanted. I don't know what sparked that idea. I think that came more from Linnell. We heard that he likes his uh, science magazines. I I would bet it did, but we don't know. There's this old article where they say they went to the NASA Archive Center in Washington, D.C. and searched for thousands of photos on laser discs pulling out ones they thought would look good for the album cover. I Hmm. don't think that became the album cover because I don't know why NASA would have this. (laughs) Linnell says, we managed to get a lot of pictures. There are all sorts of really nice color photos on the on the earth testing sessions. Like there's people on a plane, the plane is in free fall. They're sort of floating. There's this really nice color photo of astronauts testing the car that they drove around the moon. You can't really see where they are, except they're wearing spacesuits, and behind them you can see clouds and the blue sky. We thought that looked pretty nice. That seems like was an inspiration for the Statue Got Me High mm-hmm. video, right? Sure. Which we'll get in depth, yeah. you know, when we talk about their music videos. So on the back of that the album, it says they might be giants are musical ambassadors for International Space Year. John Linnell and John Flansburg, who are the official spokesman for NASA. Well, no, 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 no. We're not the official spokesman because nothing is official. Unofficial. We're the musical spokespeople for International Space Year, which is a program of like 17 or 18 countries. We're not quite sure, so we're probably not qualified. What do you have to, to do for them? 
Well, we try to tell people about International Space Year, which is a celebration of space exploration and a sort of international movement to get uh, space programs unified. So it's not a so it's it, it's a so it's not a nationalistic militaristic, okay, type which thing. is happening anyway with all the Russian and American. Uh, hopefully, I mean, it does seem like a nation of yeah. spaceware. Yeah, I mean, but you know, you still got a lot of like uh, Star Wars mentality out there, and I think it's it's really a move towards a, a more peaceful world. Now, I take it your connection with NASA might have something to do with the title of your latest album, which is Apollo 18. That's correct. Well, we came up with the title first, then we went down to the NASA archives in Washington, and, and they said, you know, who are you guys anyway? And we told them, and they, and they were doing this tour in 1992, so they said, oh, well, do you want to be the spokes band? I just made up that word, actually. They didn't say that. <laughs> spokes band. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, Apollo 17 was the last. Apollo, right, so this right? is Which our poor substitute for the next moon mission. It's a future-oriented thing, okay. even though it has kind of a retro title. And they've been asked about this in a, in a few interviews from that time, and they seem a little bit, I don't know, not indifferent completely, yeah. but a little bit like, we don't really know what to say about this, which I think is funny. Yeah. Um, I tried looking up a lot about International Space Year, and it's funny, I tried looking up, like, was there like a press conference, like some audio? <laughs> There's like nothing that exists about it. There is a Wikipedia page that kind of explains what it is a little bit. Sounds like a cover-up to me. It basically says, first proposed by U.S. Senator Spark... <laughs> His name's Spark. I already don't believe it. Spark Matsunaga. The designation of 92 as International Space Year was endorsed by 18 national and international space stations who also proposed the year's theme, Mission to Planet Earth. You know, this kind of brings to mind the World's Fair World's stuff, Fair, yeah. right? Um, it's kind of like a cool way of coming back to that vibe. Um, eventually, 29 national space agencies and 10 international organizations took part in coordinated activities pr to promote space exploration. Um, so... Basically, for They Might Be Giants, what this meant was that they would... What did this mean? <laughs> I think it meant they would bring it up once in a while. But I've listened to a lot of... I've listened to dozens and dozens and dozens of Apollo 18 era concerts, and they almost never comes up. Uh, I don't think it came up once even. I don't think they... They weren't really conveying a message to the audience mm. to get into outer space, uh, <laughs> like themed things, you know? But I, I always thought this was kind of an, a weird, interesting footnote um, <laughs> about this album. Yeah. It's not super important to the album, but it's like an interesting... The fact that it's almost kind of officially endorsed by NASA right. is bizarre. Because it's <laughs> like an artistic... It's not really about space, you know? It's it's If anything, space is often used metaphorically. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, the album cover is lonely and dark. Right. and It's not really about outer space. But <laughs> it, it does have a sciencey feel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're, we're going to get into that. One thing I, I wanted to mention is that the number for Dial a Song <laughs> is a misprint in this yeah. album. And, and let's, let's see. It's, it says instead of 718-387-6962, it says 718-963-6962. There's a mistake on the, uh, on the record. The phone number for dial song is incorrect. Don't call that number. The correct number is available on our t-shirt on the other albums. You can just look at the t-shirt. You don't have to buy it. Do not buy the t-shirt. Just look at the number. Write it down. As we leave. Hey, we do the commercials around here. No, you don't have to buy the shirt. 
Just look at the number. Don't call the other number. It's incorrect. What a so what a gaff. One thing that I remember from my my younger years is that a, a friend of ours said that he this was not long after the album came out. This was from 94. And I don't think it was known that it was the wrong number yet. But a friend of ours, he told me this in summer camp. Um, he said he kept calling the number and someone kept answering. He kept going like, hello. So then my friend would hang up and he, call, he, <laughs> he did this a few times in a row. And then finally, the person answered the phone. And my friend was just like, you know, I think he asked, like, is this, they might is be this music. Like, he's like, uh, I'm trying to reach, like, they might be Giants dial a song or something. And the guy on the other end of the phone said, I'm a black man and you're harassing me. Wow. <laughs> and I've remembered that one line for the past, like, 20 years of my <laughs> life. And then apparently it says the number goes to a warehouse. Do you know if they specifically got complaints from the warehouse? <laughs> from the other number? Like, I don't know what happened, but to me, it's like such a major error to, to do the wrong number of dial a song. To, they also like left out a whole, you know, verse of a song and yeah. numerous mistakes. Let's talk more about the sound of a polyteen before we go on to the first song. Um, so like we said, it's a, it's a MIDI explosion. There's, I have a, a few quotes from John and John about this. Flansburg says... It was a very wide open musical moment for both of us, which I totally can see when you listen to it, like even more than their other albums. Like it's like you can't imagine them getting even more like we can just do whatever we want. But it's something about Apollo 18 is like so freeform, especially the end. Yeah, yeah. He, he continues. We were about as deep into the MIDI and self sampling cave as I think we ever got. We are very excited about the unlimited possibilities. And then he says... There's more Hammond organ and horns than ever before, and the guitar is quite distorted on most of the songs. Before we started this album, I got a Marshall amp, and John Linnell got a couple of better saxophones, and those changes can be heard all over the recording. That's from a really old uh, article. Do you think the guitars are more rocking on this? Yeah, there's a few that very Marshall stack. There's a few very specific examples. Well, here's the thing. They sound more distorted, but they're not... Mm -hmm. The album isn't mixed in a way where it's like in-your-face guitars. Mm -hmm. They're kind of blended in the background. And uh, there's specific songs where I want to talk about how the guitar sounds because I find the guitar sound a little strange in parts on this album. Hmm. Almost like they didn't know how to do a rock thing until John Henry, really. That's why we both sort of... We, saw the, we see this album as a huge transition to the right. live band because even though it's their most like MIDI fake album in a way, like it really sounds like... There's a lot of songs where I'm like, the fakeness doesn't really help the song, which I, it might be controversial, but I feel like there's a, a handful of songs where I'm like, oh, if this was a real band, it'd be like, wow. Right. I feel like they were just getting too good at faking the sounds to be real. Mm -hmm. So they said, why not just make them real? Yeah. It's like, I'm getting too good at faking my uh, enthusiasm for... <laughs> for keep going. For talking to you, Dave. Oh. Might as well just... Just accept it. You're, you're my friend, and I've got to live with that. I never have to fake it. <laughs> I don't think Dave's ever faked anything in his, in his life. You're correct. <laughs> Flansburg says, having the freedom to do the production of the entire record has been very positive. The writing and recording were our only focus for nine months. So that kind of confirms what I said about mm -hmm. them not touring at all, which is crazy for them because they kind of feels like touring and live shows is a huge part of what they do. Well, it's a well-known fact. They actually have more hours in their day <laughs> than everybody else does. Yeah. Um, Flansburg says, we purposely avoided session man mania and let our own humble playing shine through. And it's true. Hmm. There is a good amount of guests on this, but compared to Flood, it's a little bit less. And there's certain things where you can imagine them getting guests like on... Uh, 
she's actual size, but apparently yeah. it's like all John Linnell like playing the horns, you know, stuff like that. I wanted to talk about uh, two interesting articles I read about Apollo. Two. Two about <sighs> Apollo 18 because okay. they kind of, um, they like go, they go with each other very well. So there's this one interview with Flansberg where he's complaining about another interview and he says, someone the other day said, how many of these are throwaways? <laughs> and this is about Apollo 18. And he says, I really felt like leaping across the table. If anything, I think we could do with loosening up and jamming a bit more. We've gotten very focused on this crafted songwriting thing. Everything is scrutinized to the ninth degree. And by the way, I, I think this album sounds like that mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way. Um, We're the epitome of the uncarefree band. We define uptightness when it comes to <laughs> writing songs. So then Linnell says, and it's hard to say once we're finished working, what it was that we were being so incredibly uptight about because it comes across as a lot more freeform than it actually is. So I found the interview that Flansburg yeah. is mad about, actually, when I, when I looked up more stuff. Okay, so in, in this article, uh, I'll call it out, written by Mike Paddington. So Flansburg hates this guy. <laughs> if you're listening, Mike, it's okay. We all, we all make mistakes. He's not. It's sort of implied that Mike said to Flansburg, are these throwaway songs? Mm -hmm. So it says, Flansburg is quoted as saying, none of our material is throwaway. We actually work really hard on putting records together. In fact, they're taking more and more time. <laughs> so I yeah. feel like this is the interview where that happened because they're about from the same month. And then it says, is he aware that the duo are seen by many in this country as purveyors of insufferable smart arse pop? <laughs> Which is so well, mean. I never. <laughs> and then Flansburg says, one of the misconceptions about us is that our songs are all jabberwocky. A lot of our lyrics are very direct. I kind of disagree with Flansburg that the lyrics mm. are direct. There's a few songs that are. But uh, I thought this was an interesting moment where they put out a they put out this ambitious album with so many exploration like yeah. space explorations into all these new genres and they musical territory and the response by a journalist is like oh you're just like throwing away songs well, like throw away is such know? a harsh term you know I hate that well what are critics now right Nothing. everything. <laughs> I can't make up my mind until I read a review yeah. <laughs> about something, Dave. That's very disheartening. And I, that's so weird because if there was any band that I would say like puts so much effort and like songcraft into everything they do, especially like the way the songs are structured yeah, too and much. put together. Yeah, when, when, to say it's throwaway. When they say in interviews, kind of they've been like, oh, this is like the third version of this song. It used to have different verses and like... I don't do that. Right. <laughs> I just go with the first verse. And if it's not that great, I go, oh, that song's a wash. It, it's right. okay. Maybe I'll play it. Uh, you know, this is back in the day when I used to play live. But I was like, oh, maybe I'll play it live at one or two shows. See how. Right. It they also rework stuff and demo stuff. And yeah, they're like tireless. Obsessively. With, yeah. When we get to the Apollo 18 demos in a few episodes, we will see there, there's crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. People are so dismissive. Yeah. Nobody knows how much work goes into something. Um, this is something I thought was interesting that John Linnell said about the title, Apollo 18. He says, it seemed to tie together partly the idea of space, but also being spaced out. Hey. Interesting, right? Space. I, I, I didn't see that as like an <laughs> inherent pun in the, the album, but that's what, he, that's what he thinks about it. Right? Okay. And he says, it's, like, it's such a common state for me and John. So weird. Out. Yeah, I see them as the most ultra focused people yeah. I've, I've ever been a fan of, you know, like I'm a fan of a lot of bands where they're like, oh, yeah, we recorded that album in like t one week, mm. you know, and the albums are usually pretty good, too. But yeah, for it's an album that we just said they spent nine months recording. Hmm. 
Like that's crazy for them. Like well, that's a, that's a long says time. He's lazy. <laughs> Linnell says he's lazy. I have a lot of quotes of them saying how lazy they are. It's insane. If that's lazy, then <laughs> check, please. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings us to track one. Holy. You ready? Holy. <laughs> you ready, Jordan? <laughs> Censor self censorship. Yeah. Dig my grave. Whoa. Dig my grave. A great Won't you now? Album opener. This is this is an amazing album opener. There's sort of like we were saying. There's something about it that just makes me want to put the album in and start it. I don't know why, because it's we're gonna get to that big Linnell opener in the next yeah. song. But I really like the idea of a short album pre, kind of a preamble, right? This is a punk rock flan song, man. It's it's punk. It's it's chunked, <laughs> chunked out. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah, what do you think of Dig My Grave? You must like it because you're into punk. I like it a lot, and I think maybe this had a hand in me getting this album first. Mm. It's kind of like a big rocking opening track to you know get you excited about the album. I mean, I still remember hearing it live. Yeah, we talk about that in our first episode. It's interesting you mentioned the live thing because so this song really transformed live into a, a whole sure. other song. Uh, I'd almost say like the true spirit of the song is the live version. And this comes up a few times on this album, actually, that idea. I was listening to it today and like, uh, I mean, just keying into the bass, for example, Danny mm. Weinkoff's doing something totally different Oh, really? <laughs> on, the, on the bass for the live version. Interesting. He's doing a lot more runs and like uh, going up to the octave and stuff and just kind of like Whoa. having more fun with it. Whoa. So here's an interesting thing about about that is I've got one of the first times they've ever played it live and it's with the drum machine. This mm -hmm. is before they had a band. They oh, were wow. it's 1990 something. Let's actually see. So I thought you'd find this cool. Uh, this is February 92. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a band yet and they're working on Apollo. They did Apollo 18 enough that they have these backing tracks. So let's listen to this really early version that's the most similar to the album version that I've heard live. Mm -hmm. accordion <laughs> and like you also yeah, hear Linnell's cool. harmony louder than Flansburg in, in yeah. that recording I thought that was interesting another interesting a little sequel to that is when they did some Apollo 18 shows at Joe's Pub which mm -hmm. I missed I remember hating that I missed that what year was that 
That was 2003. And for anyone who doesn't know, which is most people, Joe's Pub is a tiny, tiny, tiny venue in Manhattan. I don't know if it's still open. We saw Frank Black there. We saw Frank Black there. It's it's a, awesome. it's like one little room. Like it's crazy. Uh, comparative to like a, a normal club show. It's it's a little stage, it's a little room and it's all seated. Pretty outstanding. And it's a two drink minimum and the you know and it's it's kind that of seems like superfluous information. Well, I have a lot of the, they make a lot of jokes about it <laughs> oh, on, okay. at the show. Actually. Then it's vital. Now that you mention it, I, I actually remember being really annoyed at how much they watered down the drinks. So, OK, my only point is that at that show, they, they kind of brought back the idea of doing Dig My Grave like on the album, this time with a band. So whereas normally they do Dig My Grave with a slow intro and then an insanely fast, smashy version mm -hmm. and then crazy solos and screaming. This show, they, they were trying to emulate the album as much as they could. And I have a few other songs from it that are interesting, but here's, here's them doing that in 2003. Something that I think is interesting is that they, it seems like they do the birdhouse trick again with this song, which is that the first few bars are very quiet well, yeah. and then it comes smashing in. And I feel like they're, it's unusually quiet in the beginning. Yeah. Like there's no reason it's still, you're just still hearing a guitar through an amp. There's no reason that it would be like, kind of like, nir, 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 nir. but like, I, I think they did the same trick twice, which is fine. They really wanted no it judgment. to wake you up yeah. and rock you out. It, it works. There's a lot to talk about the music. The lyrics are kind of sparse, but I had a kind of it's little short. little, uh, little idea about them. Do you have any idea about the lyrics that you want to jump in with? I mean, not really, because it is so short, mm. uh, other than the fact that it stays on, uh, what is that called? It stays on brand with, you know, their themes of death and yes. doom. <laughs> Yeah, for some reason, it's like when other bands do like kind of metal songs about death, it, it comes across as kind of silly. But when they might be giants do it, for it's me, it feels like scary. <laughs> and I'm just speaking as a fan because I think for most people, they might be giants are silly, you know. But Dig My Grave to me is like a scary song. I actually had a different interpretation of it than I, I've ever had. Do you think it's about somebody uh, threatening someone else? I like that idea too. But that isn't what I was thinking. So for me, Apollo 18 is like the Flansburg breakup album with a mm -hmm. girl. And it, and not just breakup, but then like having a crush on a new girl. And this comes up in a bunch. Flansburg has a bunch of songs on this album that feel like from the heart, like yeah. songs about love, sad and, and glad, <laughs> mostly sad. But never mad. Never mad. And Dig My Grave, I looked at it from that approach, and I was like, every time I look in your eyes, which is a romantic line, usually in a, mm. in a song, if you're looking in someone's eyes, it's usually not someone you're not involved <laughs> with. Um, every time I look in your eyes, I see St. Peter wave, and it's like, it's like an ominous... Mm -hmm. So, like, not to jump ahead, but it's like, narrow your eyes is a bad breakup mm -hmm. Flansburg had. Apparently, it's a true story, you know? Though, like, everyone's had, like, bad breakups, really. So, yeah, every time I look in your eyes, he's, like, just wants to die, <laughs> right? And then the second verse is, every time you call my name, 
sort of similar. Like I want to die like every, or, or I feel like I'm dying. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess like imagine they're like in a supermarket and Flansburg's girlfriend's like, John. And he's like, Oh, I just want to kill myself. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I, I sort of like see this song as like a prelude to the other Flansburg songs on the album that are about like romantic, uh, frustration or loss or, you know, not just strictly like it's a song about death, but it's a song about like feeling like death, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. I think that's good. I I mean, I also think it goes along with the science space feel of the album in that, you know, what is... That's where St. Peter lives <laughs> in outer space. In the, in the clouds. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about the mention of St. Peter? I mean, other than that... He's your boy, right, man? He's... <laughs> right, dude? Yeah. <laughs> I can't pretend to say cool things <laughs> as a joke, even. Uh, no, I don't... Well, so, well, St. Peter... He, the, the thing with St. Peter is he's... he's other the, than that, he greets people he, in heaven. He greets people at the gate, the pearly gates. Yeah. He has a book. He reads the book. It says yeah. if you're a good... Like Santa Claus, if you've been naughty or nice, right? Might as well be. <laughs> Might as well be, right? Um, but instead of presents, you get into heaven. Yeah. Where there's lots of presents, I assume. I guess, yeah. To me, this like comes across as like Flansburg, every time I look in your eyes, I see St. Peter. He's like, St. Peter, it is kind of a judgmental thing. Like, have you been good mm-hmm. in your life? Have you been bad? Is your name on this list? I, I, you know, it could be about guilt, be in a bad relationship. I'm not, I'm trying not to project too much right. <laughs> into this. You know, I, I, there's an element of that, though, for me. I guess I just, because of the shortness of the song and the bluntness of it, I saw it as more matter-of-fact, just like, almost like sometimes a pipe is a pipe or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever that saying is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the song, this is a question I had, is like, is it parodying a type of song? Because, see, like we said, Apollo 18 is getting so convincing with the fake drums and mm-hmm. stuff that... I feel like if they had a song like this on their first album, we'd be like, oh, this is a joke. Mm-hmm. Like they're making fun of loud, fast punk. Yeah. But yeah. on the the production of Polytine is, is, is so convincing in a way that it's like it, it never came across to me as a joke until I kind of listened to it with a more putting that like ironic mindset. And I'm like, yeah, are they pretending to be rocking? I think. It's supposed to be earnest, and mm. I'm fairly sure, especially because they elevate it slightly by putting the nice violin and cello yes. uh, over that one part. So it's like a little bit of punk sensibility, but mixed with some more musicality. The orchestral thing kind of is like a, a heavy metal thing, right? Like they've there or uh, there's a certain genre of metal where that like mm-hmm. we'll get a string section in there and it'll be epic, you know, like uh, yeah, right, like Led Zeppelin, <laughs> right, right, or whatever. Um, it's funny because that live duo version from '92, like to me, it it almost feels like oh, this is like the genre parody thing. Because imagine being there and seeing two guys, one with an accordion, yeah. there's a drum machine, and they're like going like dig my grave, like screaming and. It seems kind of funny in that context, which I think is a good clue of why they really decided to get a band. Like maybe mm-hmm. they're like, we just don't want to keep being funny, hmm. you know, even when we don't mean to be kind of thing. I think maybe they just hit the limitations of what two people can do. Yeah. Not us, I, though. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we hit that a long time ago. Oh, yeah. um, well, I think they got more and more ambitious, you know, that's all. And yeah. they got more experience with what they were doing and. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm like the growth. I'm endlessly fascinated, though, by like the fact that like Dig, and Dig My Grave is a perfect song to discuss it. Where it's just like with as a duo, it's kind of funny. Yeah, and yeah. still great. Like mo- 
the melodies of their songs are great. So the arrangements are great, but there is a, a there is a strange, like Bill Krause said, like they lost something in, integral when they got a band. They lost this sense of uh, art, as Flansburg would say, like art fuck. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like what you're gaining is a, a more genuine experience as like a rock song. And this isn't just for Dig My Grave, but almost all of their songs really. But like what you're gaining is like a real adrenaline rush. I also think you're gaining more instrumentation yeah. and getting, I mean, because their songs are so complex and layered and have, you know, this musicality to them, you know, that'll just be amplified when you bring more great musicians in that can do their own yeah. parts. I would say and add more to it. It gives the song a more organic life of its own. Yeah. Rather than your which I again I think this is the point, rather than repeating the same tape every night at a show where there's no growth. Right. <laughs> there's no like evolution. And to go back to the animal theme of the album, um, it's like making things live songs. It's like they decide their own fate, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we've experienced this with with our bands and stuff. Like when we were a band, like songs really transformed like over time mm-hmm. and it became yeah. to a point where it's like it's not like a new song, but it was like this is so important to the song. Like the, yeah. I had one song where you and our drummer switched instruments halfway through. Yeah. And that became the song to me is like. Sure. Like that's so yeah, that important to like the feel of what the audience is feeling while they're watching us is like, yeah. you know. So I wanted to talk about the the bridge with the or with the cello. Or I don't know if it's the bridge. <laughs> uh, so let's give credit. It's Garrow Garrow Yellen on cello and Mark Feldman from uh, the Flood album mm-hmm. on violin. I looked up Garrow Yellen and he's actually on a bunch of things that I like as a cello player. Oh. And one thing I'll just play that he did, there's this amazing David Byrne album called mm-hmm. Here Lies Love. And it's like a musical about Imelda Marcos. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy concept album. Garrow Yellen plays throughout that album. Here's a, here's a good example of a song he plays on. I'll play a little bit of it for Dave because it's very string heavy. I wrote inside my yearbook to try his to succeed. Fried chicken and the rumba, the colors pink and cream. Ninoy was my first love, but he said I was too tall. David Byrne sounds weird. <laughs> Every song has a guest vocalist. Oh. Uh, out of like the 30, it's a double album. There's like 30 songs. David Byrne sings like one of them or two. What a ripoff. But anyway, so the, he, he plays cello, and that album was produced by Pat Dillett. So is that a coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Oh, no. Sorry sorry to yell. And the other thing I really like in this song is, so Flansburg has his little like guitar solo, (laughs) which is an awesome solo, but it's like, it's kind of awesome and how messy and, (laughs) you know, simple. But I I thought you'd like this. Like, I really like how the bass is still going like really frenetically under it, which is unusual. It's very unusual. yeah. Yeah. So like most songs, when there's a guitar solo, the bass will either not do anything or it'll do like one or few, a few notes at it, like do the roots do, yeah. to give that space. Mm-hmm. And the in this one, backs the, off. it's going like do, 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 which is yeah. like such a rocking. You think there's real bass on this? Song? I think there's real bass. I don't see why they wouldn't. But like, like we said, it's like, it's really getting tricky about do we yeah. want things to be fake or not? A bass is easier to have as real than drums because it's hard to get a drummer and a drum set and mic that. Right, right. You need yeah. a big studio. You need a lot of inputs, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, like I couldn't do that in my room because I only have four mic inputs. Right. Like it's kind of a big uh, hassle. 
but a bass is like you just plug in a bass and it's small. You can carry it into the studio with <laughs> one arm. Yeah. There's so many advantages. <laughs> There's so many. The things are small. You can carry them. Uh, they make bass sounds. Oh, yeah, and we've got uh, Flansburg on the... I, I, I listened to Apollo 18, like, many times in mm -hmm. the past few weeks with headphones, yeah. which it, it's a great headphone album because they really seem... Like, even more than Flood, like, Flood seems almost more like everything's kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. Apollo 18's, like, really, like, listen to this in this one ear and mm -hmm. this other thing, uh, almost like Beatles-esque. So in Dig My Grave, it's Flansburg on the right and Linnell on the left. So there's almost no lead singer because they're both, like, as loud as the other, I think. And if you like take one ear off, you just hear it's like, this is Dig My Grave with like John Linnell singing ah, it, right? And it's cool. like the harmony. So I think that was really cool. I should do that more. The vocals in Dig My Grave, they apparently recorded them through, uh, they, say, they say fuzz boxes. Does that just mean an amp? <laughs> what, sure. what is the difference? I don't really understand don't that term. I assume it means a guitar amp. Uh, recording things through guitar amp is a really cool technique. I wanted to play a clip because I did that on a bunch of songs. And this is this is what that sounds like. This is what that sounds like to record vocals through an amp. It's a great effect because you can do fake distortion like easily. Yeah. But to really get that unpredictable raw sound is exciting. One cool thing that happens is like everything is so magnified that like you hear every little breath. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that and I noticed that when I used it in mm -hmm. one of my songs is that you hear like, <gasps> like really distorted and loud. Uh -huh. And you notice it in Dig My Grave too, especially on the, the second verse. You know, like that's something that's a cool technique because breaths in a song is an interesting thing is you could easily cut them out because yeah. they're not musical. But at the same time, there's something, there's like an intensity to hearing that because there's, it like adds more to the humanity of the singer. Yeah. It's a fine line when you cut out too much of it. It does. It sounds robotic. Yeah. It's it doesn't weird. sound like a person's actually singing it. Yeah. It's funny for, I made this EP and track one on the EP. The first thing you hear when you press play on the EP is, <gasps> And yeah. like that was intentional, but when I sent it to someone to be mastered, they cut that out. Ooh. And I was like, I'd had to email them, be like, that was on purpose. Right. <laughs> like I didn't make a mistake and leave it in. Yeah, I've, I've done that on songs. Too. Yeah. So what I like about doing it through an amp is it's just, it's, it's really, it's almost is a musical aspect. And you hear that in Dig My Grave. I do have one more memory about this song, which is I remember years ago, this is just one of those alt music TMBG memories that stuck with me is that... There was someone, not like you, but there was someone who was a big fan. Excuse of, me. <laughs> there was someone who was a big fan of punk and metal yeah. that was posting, and he also liked. They Ain't no one Giants. like me. <laughs> That's what Dave's T-shirt says. <laughs> um, they were posting on the group, and there was some argument about mm. if they might be Giants rock or not, uh, uh. which I think is an interesting argument because uh, I could see <laughs> all sides to it. And um, there was someone insisting that they rock, and they're like, "What about?" 
you know, they named a few songs, but they're like, what about, what about Dig My Grave? Mm-hmm. And the guy just said, if I played Dig My Grave for my like metal friends, they would laugh in my face. Yeah. And I totally get that because <laughs> if you compare it to a real rock song, like, yeah, it's fake drums. It's, it's, it's not quite as huge. Like Stompox is actually a good counterpoint. Mm-hmm. It's not quite in that level, but for They Might Be Giants, it's pretty damn rocking. And for Apollo 18, it's, it's really rocking. I guess you'd really have to get into the broader discussion of what it means to rock. <laughs> I think about that a lot. You know what I think about with that is um, Frank Black in an interview, he was saying... To him, the most rocking song on Teenager of the Year, which is his second mm-hmm. uh, solo album, is Sir Rockabye, which if <laughs> which you know really that album, it, it's a it's a <laughs> r- cool vibe, yeah. slow, quiet song. I'm Sir Rockabye, rockin' on. But I know what he means because he's like, to me, that song is rock. Like it feels like the yeah. rock soul because I think to him, and this this is when he was very influenced by They Might Be Giants, mm-hmm. this this album. Uh, by the way, if you're a They Might Be Giants fan, that's the Frank Black album to check out, I feel. It's just so much like a They Might Be Giants album in sound and presentation. Yeah. Um, or, the, or the one before it. Yeah, or the one before. But I feel like Teenager of the Year is even more... It's even more. <laughs> they might like like he's really stripped away all the pixies from his right. blood. But so like teenager of the year to me is very. Uh, most of the songs are very fussed over the way they might be giants fuss over. But I Sir see. Rockabye, there is a casual vibe in the vocal performance and the guitar playing that I kind of get what he means. And I think about that a lot in terms of like what is rock. You think it's more bluesy? Yeah, it's got that blues element. Mm. It's got it's got like. Uh, let me just put the mic a little farther from me and just hang out in this chair. Yeah. And, you know, there's something there's something rock about sitting down and playing guitar. In a, you know, <laughs> in a way. Well, rock isn't tight pants or anything, man. You know, or is it? <laughs> I don't think Motley Crue rocks. I think they stink. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! And like everyone would, I mean, anybody would argue that's like quintessential rock. And I'm just like, oh, just kind of stupid to me. Yeah. What is rock? What is punk? What is, yeah. I mean, I, the Talking Heads book I just read, it, it really, he's just like, I didn't know we, we were punk. Some people said we were, some people said we weren't. <laughs> it's like, what does it even mean? You know what I think punk is? I think it's being honest. Yeah. Well, they talk, he talks a lot about like, oh, we wore like button down preppy outfits, like shirts. Yeah, just being yourself. And part of that is like, cause we didn't care about dressing like rock stars but they wanted to look nice on stage but people thought that was funny and weird (laughs) but it's like when i look at what they wore i'm like that's just normal clothes you know i think punk is just listening to yourself listening to your inner voice yeah being true so let's talk more about dig my grave uh it it speeds up towards the end it sure does jordan which i think (laughs) is cool it's exciting and it's again it's it's a weird thing when it's a drum machine it almost takes away some of that excitement because speeding up is a thing where it's like, oh, a drummer would get excited and speed yeah. up. But a drum machine doing it is like very fake and like like fake excited, you know? Just following orders. Just following, exactly. <laughs> And 
Dave, we've got some actual factuals from Edward Douglas, who, or we can call him Ed for short. I feel like we know him by now. I don't know. Um, Ed had some stuff to say about Dig My Grave, and then he'll also be coming in later for some of the other songs. So, so here's Ed, everybody. Listen up. Like I said, they, they, they would do like these, these uh, you know, three-week periods or four-week periods and come back. And I sort of know the songs they did the first time just because the it was very, like, new for me to be at that stage of hearing their music. And Dig My Grave was definitely not one of the first batch of songs. It was probably the second. It could have even been the third. Whatever reason, they, were, they, were, they, they, they came in with, like, three or four songs with each, for each batch. But uh, this was probably the second or third batch. But, uh, I mean, I think Flans actually sang both parts. Oh, both really? Both in the background, yeah. And, uh, you know, it is, it is a fuzzed-out vocal but yeah. I don't think we I don't think we recorded it that way. I think they did that in the mix. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because if you record it with like fuzz, you can't take it off later. So yeah. all the bass and drums are from the, the sequencer again. Oh um, wow. No, no. There was definitely I think there's two songs on the album which is definitely real bass that he played. Oh, okay. But uh no, this was this was this was from the sequencer. It was As far uh, as you recall, we should say, in case someone yeah. hearing this is like, I know the real answer, you know. We, yeah, I'll do a, a clean as I recall, and then yeah. just like you can yeah. just edit that into everywhere yeah. where I'm saying things because yeah, we're talking about you know 30 years ago now, almost 29 years ago. Mm-hmm. So well, you know, every everything in life is like Rashomon, basically. Like, <laughs> if, you get, if you get if you get if you get four different stories, <laughs> maybe maybe one thing between them will line up, and that's yeah. the, that's the story. <laughs> so. Do you remember recording? There's a cello part on right. my grave and yes. all that. What happened is we do these sequences, then you know. Flansburg would like do guitars in some parts. Maybe you do some vocal. Like, like I, I don't remember if we actually would do a whole song and finish it before moving on. But I think a lot of it was just like what, what, were they, what they were in the mood to do that day. But when the guests came in, it was kind of special because you know it was like four, of the, just the four of us for the whole period. And then every once in a while we'd have oh the string players come in and we do a string session or some of the other vocalists would come in. Linnell doesn't do a lot on this that I know of, but I mean, I think he did arrange the strings, though. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, arranging strings would be something he would probably have done. Mm. I don't remember if there was ever anything on the sequencer for those string parts. I think they might have been, you know, written afterwards or, or added afterwards. Because so much is MIDI, um, when, you've, when you're all of a sudden, you, it's like, oh, we got to mic a string section now. Uh, is that like jarring for either, you know, for the for the vibe of the session because everything was just kind of going directly into a computer until that, or is it, or is it just like it's all the same kind of thing? The Magic Shop had a great live room. It was very much a live, you know, a place where people did live music. But it wasn't. It was just like bad of like oh, we're doing strings today, so I'd have like two mics set up. There you go. And I think those parts, like the strings, would have been, would have been like it probably wouldn't be an all day thing. But it would probably be three or four hours as you know they come in and then Linnell would go through you know, what he wanted them to play. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm assuming he probably had some charts for them or some kind of thing for them to play off of as well. Yeah. Paul comes from a you know, live background anyway. So, I mean, even though I was kind of the MIDI guy at the Magic Shop, they knew their computers. I, I didn't have to, like, you know... And, you know, the funny thing is that the strings... I mean, I, I don't know if you got this, but the strings are playing what seems to be Maria from West Side Story. Um, Maria, I just know a girl from like from Maria. If you know that, if you know that song, West Side Story, it's pretty well known. Yeah. It very, sounds like the very end that deliberately... Referencing, which I'm not sure what it has to do with the song. Are you guessing this, or do you recall that coming up? The- <laughs> oh well, no, it didn't come up. I just, it's just that, that that's that is what the melody is. Maria, I just met a girl named Maria.
Interesting. Well, it's not the first uh, West Side Story reference. We yeah. actually talk about that in our Lincoln uh, episodes. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. There's yeah. a song where they kind of paraphrase right. a, a few lines. So we know they're a fan. Mm, okay. So I think this tracks. Yes, <laughs> it's tracks. It is like a punkier song. For me, I always thought, assumed that he was kind of making it, poking fun at uh, the goth movement because like the early hmm. 90s, you know, I mean, it was big in the 80s, but like in the 90s, it was like, I mean, I, I, I wear black as well. So I'm sure that, you know, I think Dig My Grave is supposed to be a, a kind of a kind of a very goth type title. Yeah. Right. Dig My Grave. What do you think of Dig I My Grave? I give it nine out of nine. This might be a good time to, before rocks. we continue. Uh, email us at don'tletstartpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you think of Apollo 18. Those, the, the... I'm going to assume people like it. Yeah, do you like it? And our Twitter is at Don't Let's Pod. I'm going to post a bunch of Apollo 18 related things uh, and podcast news and all that. And we also have a YouTube channel now, and I'm going to make some clips of some of these uh, song segments. And thanks to the, the Twitter people for uh, saying happy birthday to me. Yeah, oh my God, I wait. I appreciate this that. This is crazy news. And thanks to Jordan for telling them to do that. Dave's birthday was a few days ago. My birthday is tomorrow. So if you want to... You know what a great birthday present would be? Tell friends about the show. <laughs> I'm serious though. Tell your old hard cash. Tell friends about the show. Spread the word. Get people to listen to it, especially if if they're really big, they might be Giants fans. Or even if you're getting a friend and so they might be Giants, I feel like our show is a good guide. You know, that's the thing. Word of mouth. Word for sure of mouth. But thanks, guys. Thank it you. And review us. I want more reviews. <laughs> made me feel very special. I appreciate it. Me and Dave are being dragged, kicking and screaming towards our twenty-one, our middle years <laughs> in life, and it's uh, it's upsetting. Anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm getting up there now, twenty-two. So, speaking of birthdays and special days, and getting older, and hating your mother, this next song is called "I Palindromai." Someday, mother will die, and I'll get the money. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, Palindromai is, is, I almost feel like it's the last huge song we have to discuss mm -hmm. in, in their career in terms of, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like hugeness. I think this is one of Linnell's densest songs of all it time, It might be right? his best lyrics, though Anna yeah. Ng is pretty special, but it, it might be his the most like Linnellian because yeah. even Anna Ng is a little strangely emotional for Linnell. This yeah. to me seems to be more his wicked hum dark mm -hmm. sense of humor, more like you know. This seems to be almost more a representative of what I would like if I were to play a few songs for someone to to say yeah. like what this band is about. And this honestly was. I would say the lyrics to I Bound or My to like people in like high school and you know I'm sure that made you a big hit girls I, <laughs> me and my girlfriend I, she remembers one of our first dates we were mm -hmm. walking around a park and I was like telling her about this song because uh -huh. I was explaining who they might be giants were and she was like because she knew Malcolm in the middle right you heard that in our uh, episode featuring our, our uh, significant yeah. others so she knew the Malcolm in the Middle song, and I was I was using this song I Bound or My as an example of like this is how great they can be, you know, 
or they usually are. Yeah, I'd say this maybe like it's not my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> examples of very dense yeah. lyrics or a letterbox lyrics folding in on themselves. Yeah. Thoughts, ideas. And I think what even puts I pound space or am I in, in another world. I think what puts I pound or am I in, in its own category though is it's not just that the lyrics are dense, but that's the story in the song is like a story yeah. that you could see as like a movie yeah, in your head. And a lot of their songs have hints of that. Like even Letterboxd, there's a hint of that. Mm -hmm. But this song really puts it in like, it's almost in like three act structure, mm -hmm. like yeah, a movie totally. is. And I want to talk about all of that. And, and more. And more. Uh, I guess I'll just ask in a general sense, what are your, what were your impressions of this song? What do you think about it? Whether music, the lyrics? No, it's a, I mean, it's one of the most impressive songs in their catalog, just in terms of craftsmanship. Yes. But um, it's funny, I was trying to parse through the lyrics, you know, the other day, because mm -hmm. obviously I've heard the song a million times and on the surface, like you said about the three-act play, yeah. on the surface, you would assume it's just about a bad relationship that a mother and son have. And i that's so overwhelming in the theme that you yeah. maybe overlook that there's a whole family involved. It's a whole family, on. man. I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, getting freaked out <laughs> by a song or the darkness of this album. The more you, the more you dig into this song, the creepier it gets. It's a haunting song. Yeah. And what's funny is I, you know, I remember on the old news group and the mailing list, like people seem to not get the surface story in the song, which admittedly took me a while too, because you really have to sit down with it. But people would, yeah. would not even, people would, I, I've saw posts that were just like, oh, it's just about palindromes. Like I saw a lot of posts being like, oh, it's just them being college boys talking about grammar and well, it's it's using that as a vessel to tell a story. Yeah, about things repeating themselves, and not well, not just a vessel, but it's like the essence of. Yeah, there's a lot. This is so dense. Um, it, it is. It's actually the first thing that really turned me on to the the real story is is Chris Stengel, who I mention all the time mm -hmm. on the news group. He did a really long interpretation, line by line, of this song, and it it kind of. He said things that I kind of were, I think, maybe even unconsciously kind of felt about the song already, but he he put it in a good narrative structure. So in, in terms of the family, like I do have, there's been a lot of, um, there's a lot of intros in concert when they introduce this song. Mm -hmm. So um, here's a song that my mom like really hates. I don't know why. I think she, I think she just uh, thinks it's uh, just too tricky, too, too complicated. She's hated this song from the moment that she wrote it and showed it to us. She is very, very tough on herself as a writer. Carly, like, look, this is one of your best things that you've given us. Don't tell them about the parents writing the song. It's just not cool. There's one I want to play here. I'll play it for Dave now. And I want to listen. So my folks are here, and I want to tell them that this song's got nothing to do with them. <laughs> this is sort of a family values kind of song, but it's about some family that uh, we're not personally related to. And the song is called I Palindrome I. So yeah, it's a, it's a family. Um, I think in the broad sense, we could say that, it, or I could say, I won't speak for Dave, 
Um, or maybe well, I will. I'm Dave. Before you say that, <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure I get this right. We should say that this is a song that was handed off to... The super early origins of this song uh, was something that Joshua Freed revealed to us in our interview with him. That's in part two of our interview, but I'll, I'll play the brief clip for convenience because I think it's, it's very interesting. I have a couple of origin stories you might not know oh, sure. uh, that just come to mind. Flansburg and Linnell were talking about palindromes and Flansburg <laughs> wanted to come up with like the most stupid, like drunken non-palindrome, like an embarrassing, like mm-hmm. idiot non-palindrome. Just like, I palindrome, I. Now we've come full circle and we're playing clips of ourselves. Yeah, I can't wait in a few uh, episodes to play clips of me saying this. Yeah. It's going to be crazy. Talk about palindromes. Exactly. So Flansburg thought of the phrase, I palindromai, and we are going to get more more into that when we talk about the demos in a few episodes. So I'm kind of going to skip over the Flansburgness of it, but it's something that triggered something in Linnell's brain. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if, um, you know, it was Flansburg being like, Linnell, take this, or if Linnell took it upon himself uh, to take it. Uh, but it's it, that's an interesting collaboration. Yeah. Linnell hears that phrase, and I, it seems like it just spilled out of him this whole this has happened to me like a very rare moments where i'd get Mm -hmm. i'll just get a whole idea that feels so fully formed for like a song or something where i'm like oh my god i have the whole story in 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 my head in an instant it seems cool yeah (laughs) i can't say that it happens to me that's happened to me for a few of my songs actually everything i do is gut-wrenchingly difficult okay so there's like so many origins of this song there's actually something kind of crazy that is new so WNYC did a little piece. WNYC basically did what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did like a piece on this song and they had like references and stuff. So I feel like I just want to play some of it because it sort of does our job for us in a weird nice. way. Um, but Linnell talked about the origins of I Pound or My in this piece. And I, and I think it's extremely important and interesting. Poet Hal Sirowitz has made remembering his mother a cornerstone of his work. His book, Mother Said, has an intense cult following, a cult that includes John Flansburg and John Linnell of the cult band, They Might Be Giants. I remember the, the very first shows we did with him, he wasn't the poetry slam guy. He was a guy who was basically kind of reading to you out of his journal. It was very shocking. I mean, at the time when we first started working with him, it was in the mid 80s and he would come on these stages, a lot of which had really sort of classic performance art kind of uh, cultural baggage attached. And he would just start reading and Inevitably, there'd be this strange silence, sort of stunned silence at the beginning of a show, and then the audience would kind of recognize what he was all about. The thing about Hal is he just is, he's so utterly naked when he's reading. Basically, the audience would be laughing at a lot of it, but it was nervous laughter, you know, because he's just telling you, like, stuff that's devastatingly sad and weird about, about, you know, and some of it is really hilarious, of course. Um, but for that reason, it's very black. I always think of the one where the mother complains about, I can't recite it for you, but it's the one where she's complaining that he feeds crumbs to the bugs and he never gives anything to his mom, you know. And now that I have a son, I I think about that even more. Crumbs, don't eat any food in your room, mother said. You'll get more bugs. They depend on people like you. Otherwise, they would starve. But who do you want to make happy? Your mother or a bunch of ants? I'm trying to remember whether I wrote I Palindrome I after I saw... I guess I must have written it after I saw Hal. You know, it starts with the line, Someday mother will die and I'll get the money. Except 
for the fact that Hal's mother didn't have money, I think that, that would fit in with his work. So Hal Sirowitz, we, we talked about Hal Sirowitz with Gary Ray. Mm-hmm. So check out that interview, people, if you want to know about the crazy artsy East Village uh, scene. The fact that uh, Hal Sirowitz's poems is is an inspiration for Ivan Dramai is something that totally passed by me. But yeah. I, I feel like I could have put it together, you know, if I really thought about it. <laughs> All in the family. Don't lean against the car door, mother said. It may not be locked and you can fall out. You're no use to us dead. And even though you're not much use to us now, hopefully when you get older, we'll be able to find some use for you. If you become a doctor, you can check my blood pressure and give me free medicine whenever you come to visit. And what would be ideal is if you marry a dentist who can check my teeth. But uh, that's amazing. I, yeah. I love that as a as a reference point, and it's 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 so interesting to me of the way it seems. You it it always seems like Flansburg is the one who kind of absorbs the things around him and puts mm-hmm. them in a song. And Linnell to me has always seemed more internal. Yeah, like where does he himself. get these crazy ideas? But yeah, this is him kind of doing that with in two ways because it's he took the the phrase from Flansburg, mm-hmm. and then he probably saw this Halsterwitz thing around the same time. And melded it together. So this song's just about a Jewish mother. <laughs> yes. I can see that. Yes, it is. Something startling is is that it says, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Which a, when I was a younger, they might be that. Giants fan. This this was a step up for me in terms of like, whoa. Naughty language. <laughs> this was kind of scary. It was a little scary to play in front of my parents. But I was also kind of wanted to take that little risk because it's not the worst thing in the world. But it's a little, it's a little bit edgy. Especially Is this the first them. time they curse? I think it's the first time they curse on an album. In a, on an album. Yeah. Uh, they're certainly no stranger to cursing live. Yeah, yeah. Lynn, Lynn. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming to the show. How's it going? Jesus fucking H. Christ, how the hell is it going? All right, all right. Yeah, as people, they curse a lot. Uh, in the songs, mm-hmm. they they leave it out, and I think for ways we've discussed in terms of like re- yeah. replayability, mm-hmm. and it's a little, it's a bit of a cheap shock in some ways. Uh, you know, whereas I think they want to shock people from. It's their, a crutch. Yeah, it's, it can be a crutch. In this sense, though, it's not just a curse. Yeah. It's incredibly important to the yeah. themes of the song and the story mm-hmm. of the song. So right away, so that. He didn't say, you motherfucker, which also would have worked. That would have been, I think that would have added a new layer <laughs> to that is maybe unintended. Too edible. Yeah. Um, they, they get to there with Call You Mom uh, <laughs> yeah. a few years later. I'm dying yeah. to talk about that song. but um, That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think that's an underrated uh, one, <laughs> even just lyrically. Yeah. So So the song is full of metaphorical palindromes and visual palindromes and thematic and larger story arc palindromes, which is, so that's why it's like, it's not just them being yeah. grammar nerds. It's them. It's like putting, putting their money where their mouth is putting their, it's very well putting crafted. their snake head where their yeah. other head is. <laughs> okay. Um, so a mom calling a son, a son of a bitch, 
right. is a palindrome in the sense that it's she's insulting right, herself yeah. in a roundabout way where the insult goes from mom to son and then back to mom. Yes. And, and for people who are, you know, Sons of bitches. we just got a letter from a 14 year old. So for, for, for to our podcast, you son of email, a bitch. <laughs> for our for our podcast fans who are younger and and maybe don't know the everything about everything, like I do, uh, palindrome is a is a is a language thing where something is spelled the same backwards and forwards. I'm sure that young man knows and what a palindrome it's is. Not, <laughs> that's not what I mean. I'm just I'm just saying you know if this is someone's first time. I yeah. mean, look, I learned what palindromes are from this song when I was 14. I'm I'm not so. You know, I don't think I knew. Respect. So what's what's amazing to me and so perfect is that what's a palindrome? Mom, that's a palindrome, right? Dad is a palindrome. That's a palindrome. That's a palindrome. Bub, Bob. This is a palindrome. That's a palindrome. Hey, what's your favorite uh, palindrome? Uh, race car. Race car is a great palindrome. I tried- That's a lie. There's another one that's better and I couldn't think of it. <laughs> There's some crazy ones out there. You got to find them. They're hidden in this podcast. Yeah, so, you know, what's amazing, so perfect is that the word mom is a palindrome. Mm. And he doesn't say mom, he says mother, someday mother will die, but it's like, it's still there. Yeah, he messed up. I tried writing a palindrome. Oh man, let me find it. I tried writing a palindrome over the course of years, like a sentence, and I Mm -hmm. I totally failed at it. But wait, let me see where I'm at with it. Maybe you can help me, Dave. I, I started this years ago. Towards bed... Deb's draw and I lost it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. It's too hard. Yeah. So it 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 almost worked. Towards backwards is to is to draw, right? Or some or I mean there's not much of a payoff in this activity, I feel. <laughs> well, I think I yeah, think unless you're they might be giants. Yeah. What's your favorite palindrome, you son of a bitch? Mine? Put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, I mean, uh There you have it, folks. <laughs> oh, I, I like a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. That's a good one. It seems like a palindrome when you're saying it, and it is. Though the ones that are more sneaky are, are more impressive. Was probably. it a rat I saw? That's a good one, because that's a good sentence. Do geese see God? <laughs> we just looked up a bunch of palindromes, by the way. A Santa lived as a devil at NASA. That's well, that's a stretch. That's really impressive. Damn it, I'm mad. That's good. Say that one a lot I, in my I, life. I think I'm tired of palindromes now. <laughs> well, that's not good for the segment. because <laughs> We have another 45 minutes on this. Yeah. So let, let's, okay. Wh- oh, there's the music, there's the lyrics. Yeah, it's let's, a song. <laughs> let's talk about the first verse more. Someday mother will, and we'll talk about the story. I, yeah, I had a question for you. Okay. No, I get stuck right away on this song because mom leans down and says my sentiments exactly. Creepy. So Creepy. again, because I was like really studying this the past few days. Yeah. I always imagine the mom is sick, right? I imagine the mom's in a, in a hospital bed. Right. So how could the mom lean down? Because if the son would lean down to the mom and like whisper in her ear something creepy, right? Like you're gonna die. Oh, do you think he is saying this as a small child, and so the mom's leaning down, like he's thinking this as a kid? I, that's why I wanted to ask. So I don't know. I, you know, because of the second verse, I always envision this in a hospital room right. playing out. But yeah. I like the idea that the first verse is like childhood origin, right? Mm. Mom leans down. That that, that that's a good point. I really like that. Yeah, I imagine she was kind of, you're sitting in the chair next to a hospital bed, so you are a little lower than the person because the person's sitting up in a bed. It's a weird way to say, though. You wouldn't be leaning down. I've been in many- Mom leans <laughs> in and says, yeah. yeah. Something about, mo- but mom leaning down, it implies that she's 
above him in a yeah. metaphorical sense. She's like the the fig the matriarchal figure, right? I mean, literally, but also in in the feeling of it, right? Or, <laughs> I mean, just off the top of my head, what if like the guy is sick, you know, and she's like visiting him, and he's like, oh, someday, like you're gonna be sick, you know. Because you're like older. I think that happens uh, in like a little bit later in the yeah. song. To be honest, it's I. I mean, this statement in its of itself is sort of a palindrome because it's like, who's the sick one? That's true. It's People confusing. say that about us. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> we're just a couple of characters. Yeah, yeah, we're crazy. Like off the wall, mom. So what I like about uh, something that uh, in Chris Stengel's post that I thought was really cool, and I like, I, I sort of like doing in my own song lyrics too, is trying to figure out like what's a quote like what's what mm-hmm. lyrics in a song is someone saying something so the way he posits it and and again it's all just like kind of it's not like this is what's happening but it's a cool way to think of it you know i palindrome i is like the mom saying it in the first verse and like in the in the second verse it's like the narrator saying it and then in the last verse which we'll get to it's someone else saying it i won't spoil the end, the scary end of the story. You don't think the narrator's saying in the first verse, though? I think once mom Sunday leans down woman. and says, "My sentiments exactly, you son of a bitch." I palindrome. I. I think. I feel oh, like that changes a, hands. Yeah, in my opinion, that's a continuing quote where she's like, just she's giving him a preview of what's going to happen, right? Yeah. So confusing. And then it goes, "I am a snakehead eating the head on the opposite side." You've got some yeah. great uh, Flansburg backing vocals mm-hmm. there, which is classic. Classic. They might be giants. Maybe the one of the best uses of harmonies in this song. It's something I don't do in my own songs ever. <laughs> hmm. I don't like really have. I've never plan out like there should be a backup person going like da, 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 da. like a, a counter melody. I, yeah, I like yeah. rarely do that. I don't know why. Well, it's very Linnellian to have a counter melody. Yeah. By the way, I thought he was saying little man, which actually thematically goes along really Instead well. Instead of man o Yeah. Little I thought it was man. like little man. Yeah, I used to think it was man o man, but I believe yeah. it's been confirmed. Let me look at the lyrics. I mean, I'm super wrong, but I still think it goes well. You with know, it. the lyrics don't say one way or oh, the other. He's saying little man, everyone. Yeah, I saw some bizarre uh interps of this because they thought man o nam is saying someone who was in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little off topic personally. What if it's like all inside his head, you know, and he's just like... Like Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to spoil the end of Jacob's Ladder, but, but you know, it's not a good movie because of the ending. So there you go. There you go. Just watch the... Stop the movie after two minutes before the end. <laughs> and it's I'd say movie. stop it about halfway through. Yeah. Um, so Snakehead Eating, A Head on the Opposite Side. This is a classic... Uh, arch- archetypal symbol. People are going to be mad about that Jacob's Ladder thing. <laughs> Maybe. Um... So, Dave, let, let's yeah. talk about the Ouroboros. Is that how you say it? Ouroboros? <laughs> I believe. I don't know. Who knows? The, well, things are hard to know, <laughs> like language. Wait, so I, I've got I've got a little Wikipedia thing open of, of it. So the snakehead eating its head on the upside actually has, to me, it seems like a very clear uh, meaning, which is like you're... You don't realize that you're the thing you're after that you're hurting is yourself, mm-hmm. you know. But that's there's, one interpretation. That's one yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Apparently, so it's it's been a symbol, and this fits with Ipal and is life, death, and yeah. rebirth. That's what I see it as. The very first appearance of it is an ancient Egyptian text, the tomb of Tutankhamun, in the 14th century. And there's a picture on Wikipedia. You should check it nice. out. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's an amazing. It's one of those awesome things that just like means so many different things. Um, Linnell describing it like that is great for us. Like, it's just so 
the song is so dense because yeah. like every lyric is so much to interpret, you know, like just even referencing that is like, okay, that symbol in itself has like a million interpretations, you know? Well, I believe also it's a symbol of the world as a whole, right? There's like a theory, I think I used to know this stuff more, but there's like some cultures and mythologies think that there's like a snake eating itself in a, in the ocean. I think they're right. That's why I don't go in the ocean. The money implies that there is like a large inheritance. So that's important to the story, right? Yeah. And we're going to piece together the story as, as we go along. I wanted to talk a bit about the music before we continue. A lot of reverb on the vocals. I don't, have you ever noticed? Like it, it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like a typical They Might Be Giant song in the production. It's more atmospheric. Uh, there's a lot of reverb on the drums and the vocals, which is like kind of weird for them. I know it's reverb on the drums, yeah. Yeah. Especially when that first snare roll comes in. Yeah, it's really after dig my grave. Caked in especially. reverb. Could I say that? <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to. One thing that I really like that's an interesting touch is like so like when during the line I'm a snakehead eating a head on the opposite side. So you've got the hi hat in the left ear mm-hmm. going like but when he says, you know, that line, a tambourine comes on the opposite side. Uh-huh. <laughs> on the right ear and does kind of just does what the hi-hat's doing. But it gives the sense of like, there's two things happening opposite each other that are like kind of hmm. the same thing, which is what the snake head is. I don't know if that's looking too deep into Maybe. it, but like this song has a lot of great stereo stuff, which is perfect for I Pound or My. The, the tambourine could be a snake's... Uh, like a rattle, tail rattler, rattle tail. I am a snake head eating the I always thought the guitar tone in this was kind of weird. It's very like fuzzy and do you know what I'm talking about? Like, so there's two guitars in the song. There's Flansburg doing riffs Mm -hmm. and then there's the rhythm guitar, which is very like, it's hard to describe. It's kind of like staticky and like not like very musical sounding. Do you know? What it's pretty quiet too. Yeah, here I'll play it for you again because I think this is please do in, for something unique about this song compared to the other song. Yeah, let me hear it again. Let me get a good listen. See that bulletproof dress hanging from the clothesline. See the medical chart with the random so I think that's like the Marshall amp, maybe. It's very mm. distorted for They Might Be Giants. Usually they have a little more of a clean sound. I mean, I think the headline in the song is the, the second uh, guitar yeah. playing, playing the melodic notes. Something, so something I never noticed about that is that so I used to think it just went, but it goes like, and something interesting is that the final verse in the song it keeps going a little longer it does more notes so uh-huh. you'll hear later it keeps going i think i knew that so it goes like like right. so and that's like a motif that i never noticed until listening for this show and he does that live too which is really interesting it's like really I don't know. It, it supports the melody really well. That's the snake getting bigger. The snake. Well, the, it really does fit because it's it keeps descending lower and lower, and it's yeah. like it's like a buildup of the story. You know, things are getting more scary, more dangerous. Let's talk about the second verse of "I Pound or My," and if you don't want to, get out. <laughs> get out of here, Dave. If only I could. Also, wait, before that though, I love the little You're keyboards. Little <laughs> keyboards that come into "I Pound or My." Boop, 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 boop. 
It's a good keyboard. Whatever the f- <laughs> Thank you. Whatever those are. I always introduce you as, this is Jordan, my really good keyboard impersonating friend. See the bulletproof dress. This is, to me, is the most blatant uh, yeah. uh, verse. It's basically saying that the mom... It's like the mom knows what's <laughs> the mom knows what's going to happen, but yeah. she did make an attempt at not having it happen. Like she's not super accepting of the fate. Like she's wearing a bulletproof dress mm-hmm. so that the kid doesn't. Uh, her own son, who's a son of a bitch, mm-hmm. does not shoot her. See the this is the fucking scary line. See the medical chart with the random zigzag. Now I'll help it decide. Mm-hmm. Is like really scary. And by the way, that the random zigzag is another could be another palindrome. You could look at the zigzag being the same on both sides. That's true. There, yeah. There's visual. There's like this song has a lot of like shapes yeah. <laughs> and like visual shapes and like geometric things. It's I just watched a video about like geometry shapes in The Shining and how they like induce fear yeah. in you. And it kind of reminds me of like what this song's doing. It's just like we're we live in this universe of patterns that are sometimes not they don't work out for us <laughs> in our favor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So saying he'll help the medical chart decide is basically being like, I'm going to pull the plug or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck. Either he'll Poison suffocate her, her with yeah. a pillow. I, to me, that's like a real pillow suffocating kind of guy. <laughs> that's what I imagine. Um, I, I don't see him like shooting her with a gun. I feel like this needs to be more up close and intimate. You know what I mean? I just thought he was going to inject her with something. Really? That, But that's just me, folks. <laughs> If I did it. And then as, as following the, the thread, like now the I palindromai is the narrator. Like now I'll help it decide. I palindromai. Because he's saying now it's me. In charge. Now yeah. I'm the guy who's in charge of this story. Not my not my rude mother who has mm-hmm. like been domineering, you know, which is also an archetype, you know, like Psycho and other things. Mm-hmm. So I, I always wondered if Psycho, if like he was just like uh, imagining he had a mean mom in the past. Like you don't really, you have an unreliable He's an unreliable narrator. narrator. For once, I'd like to hear a reliable narrator. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? Yeah, the second verse, you got these keyboard stabs going. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the Hammond organ that they mentioned. It kind of sounds like it. I, um, I think so. Yeah, you got a little per- Miss Professor Hammond coming in <laughs> on the song. Okay. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's, it is a really simple arrangement. Like, it's not like Birdhouse. You know, like Birdhouse is like, what the fuck is going on? There's like so many elaborate instrumentation, you know, horns and things. This is like a rock setup. Mm-hmm. You know, it's two guitars, a keyboard, drums and bass, and very simple harmony. And that's, I think to me, that's like, it's what's so, um, the song communicates itself very clearly in that way. Like it wants you to know the scary story mm-hmm. in the song. Son, I am able, she said, oh, you scare me, watch, said I, you love it, I said, watch me scare you, said she, able. So now the bridge of this song to me is like the, (laughs) it's sort of the most mind blowing, especially Mm -hmm. when I was younger, Uh, but it never really stops being impressive and mind blowing. It's the, it's one of the best things they've ever done as a band. It's one Mm -hmm. of the best things John Linnell's ever done. I'm not going to ask us what that's about. No, no, I'm not going to ask you what the song is about, but I'm, but I am going to ask you. Call my mother. I'm going to ask you to, to tell me that I am not the first person to come to you and say, I sat, no, I sat for an hour looking at the lyrics of that song, trying to figure out how it was a palindrome and going, 
The song's oh. not a palindrome. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's not that. I was putting it up to the mirror. I was holding it upside yeah. down. I was doing all kinds of. You guys drove me crazy with that song. Sorry about that. Hey, but it is part. There is part of it which is a secret thing, which is not a palindrome, but. Um, what, what what do you call that? Well, there's uh, no name for it. A but colindrome or something. Yeah, it's a colonnade or something. There's there's this part in the middle... Colonnade? ...where um, the words are the same backwards and forwards. In other words, if you take all the words and put them in the opposite order, it's the same. It's called a, a liar's palindrome. I can't imagine how he did it. Mm-hmm. So, yes, so if you if you read or sing, you could still sing it, the bridge, backwards and forwards, it's, it's the same. But but what's amazing is that it accomplishes that while also furthering the narrative. Sure, yeah, we're in, crazy. We're approaching act three in the movie. Yeah. And so what's happening in, in the bridge is, the, is, as I see it, is the son is killing the mother. Yeah. And that's scary. That's a scary concept. Um, and it's, it's especially scary because you're getting like the inner... You're getting like the f- real feelings going on. It's not just like a slasher movie thing. You're getting like the psychology of it. The mom, I think, is saying, I, I think I could try to stop you, like sh- with the bulletproof dress, mm-hmm. but you scare me. And the son's like, You think you're scared? Fucking watch, <laughs> watch right. out, because I'm going to really fucking scare you. And it's her accepting it because she, she re- I think she's helpless. Again, I imagine him putting a fucking pillow over her, her head because right. it's kind of a classic hospital uh, way to kill someone, uh, as we both have experienced. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she's saying, I, okay, I get it. That she accepts her fate. She, she accepts it in a way because she is aware of the palindromic nature of this family. And at some point, yeah. you just have to accept it, as I think the the narrator does towards the end of the song, which we'll get to. Um, the The other thing I love about the bridge is just the music of it. Like, it's such a build. I think it's a good transition into the final act of the story. Yeah. That build. The build is, is like, it's an, they don't normally, their music in their songs don't normally support the story in this way. Mm-hmm. There's definitely examples over the years, but this is like one of the best where it's like, it's dramatic. It's like a dramatic yeah. telling of a story. <laughs> and that, that's sort of why the song is so powerful because it, they're not, I don't, you know, some people might still say, oh, but the, the music's upbeat. But to me, it's the whole thing uh, gels into a yeah. consistent thing. And the, the bridge, you know, there's that buildup. And to go into the next verse, like it kind of reminds me of like the ticking of a clock. Like it's like, or a heartbeat, you know, it's like, right. dun, 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 dun. it's, it's anxiety inducing. And you, it's all about you know. clocks in the next verse. Yeah, so then we've got see the spring of the grandfather clock unwinding, and I think we've got more visual wordplay here because like a mm-hmm. so like a spring is like a spiral, and it's another shape that we're yeah. playing with, and a spiral is something that just keeps it never stops, it keeps going around and around in a circle like a palindrome would, you know, and and even spring as a season, the seasons repeat exactly. Too. It's like it's like a new yeah. era. It's really genius. And then grandfather clock, like For you're sure. you're talking generationally with families, you know, you're yeah. it, it brings to mind like the past of this family. Yeah. 
And then a grandfather clock unwind, like a spring unwinding would mean that a grandfather clock is either going backwards or possibly just stopping, you know. Breaking. Breaking down, you know. And the grandfather, it's also like a patriarchal thing. And this is now that this is the dad verse, right? Yeah. And then Fl- uh, Flansburg in the background says a palind- sings a palindrome, which I think it, it, it is one of the more nerdier moments in the song. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a it's a ominous palindrome. Yeah. It says, egad, a bass tone denotes a bad age, which whatever that specifically means, it, it gives the feeling of like we're in a bad time, which I think we can all uh, re- mm-hmm. <laughs> relate to right now. Well, and also the aging of the sun yeah yeah exactly oh yeah you're at a bad yeah. oh that's so i've yeah, never yeah. thought of that you're at a bad you're at the age where this where you're, you're gonna you're destined to you've, kill you've had kids you're you've got no more purpose in this life see the hands of my offspring there's a spring pun again yeah, pun right. <laughs> making windmills what do you think about this because i i had some I was talking to my girlfriend about this, and we had two I assume this different was a ideas. Don Quixote reference. Okay, that's what I said I, for a long time. So yeah, we can actually talk about this. You know, I actually just watched the Terry Gilliam movie um, about Don Quixote. Yeah. I really thought it was great. Actually, I recommend the, it. The very first scene in the movie is the windmills yeah. as a reference to the windmill passage in Don Quixote, which is. Um, it's, you know, it's about a kind of a kooky uh, guy. I'm just trying to describe it very vaguely for people, but it's about a guy who's, he's kind of imagining danger and yeah. drama and adventure. And he's past his prime and he's like a little bit crazy. Yeah, which is great for the narrator in this song yeah. too, for the dad narrator. And he thinks windmills are giants. He, he sees windmills and he imagines that they're giants and he starts tr- attacking them. And So it just kind of became a term for fighting nothing. Yeah, and and also like paranoia, yeah. and and you know like con- seeing conflict where there there might not be any, and thinking things are attacking you. So my my girlfriend though, um, she saw the windmills thing as a uh, a visual thing with their arms. She's like, oh, but when you're a kid, like she's like, this is something oh, making a windmill. Yeah, she's like, when I was a kid, making windmills meant you're like moving your arms around. And I was like, oh, are they like stabbing him with like mm. a, a circular motion? Another shape, by the way. Circular motion of their arms, like they're fighting him, well, they're killing him. You also do in a mosh pit is you windmill. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a so punk thing. I feel like it, it, it can mean all these things. It can be a, a, a sly coyote reference and it could also mean a visual thing of what the kids are doing with their arms. And it's, it's yeah. also it's something a little kid would, would do. Uh, you know, it's like the Simpsons thing where they're swinging yeah. their arms at each other. I just watch that. Oh, really? Yeah, like that's something that's kind of um, <laughs> in in my visual memory. And it, it also this line because of the Don Quixote thing, it gives it like a mythic feel. It gives it right. like this is a tale that's going to keep happening. A tale for, as old as time for the centuries and for centuries to come. And then the final quote is from the children saying, dad, palindrome, dad, like we're, we're coming for you. Oof. And the kids, so the thing with this family to spell it out is, you know, every generation kills the previous generation, inherits the fortune. And then they, they themselves have children, which then get the same idea. That's when they reach a bad age. One interesting thing about the bridge, uh, when they played this song on Letterman, they c- copied and pasted mm-hmm. <laughs> the bridge to the beginning of the song. And it works fantastic, huh. I guess, to make it a little longer. Um, so they open the song with, with, without the lyrics. They have now just released their uh, fourth album. Uh, this one is entitled Apollo 18. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to They Might Be Giants. Yeah! Boys!
a really cool version of the song. I actually really like a snakehead eating its head on the opposite. Yeah, side. I actually think it would have been perfect for the for the hmm. album. Even though I think the way it comes in from Dig My Grave mm-hmm. is awesome. It's a fantastic song transition. Maybe that's why they but, did that. Yeah, but but putting the bridge at the start, it, it's like the same thing that happens in the last verse is about to happen in the first verse to the mom. If you're sure. going by the story, right? I think that's like it makes that, a lot more of a circle. Yeah, that's one of my favorite versions of the song, and with a little pizzicato. Yeah, what is that? I think it's a fake. I think it's super synthy pizzicato strings, which are like would you call me plucked <laughs> violin plucked strings yeah. that are just like being plucked by a finger. So it's like bloop bloop. Uh, I used to be really good at doing fake ones. Bloop, All right, stop. I can't stop. do it. You got to get a little lip roll and like. Bloop. You know what? I'm on Months board. Months in the making Doing this episode. <laughs> I was just going to say, Linnell seems to be obsessed with dysfunctional families. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a it's. topic. I'm reminded of um, Stone Cold, Coup d'etat, <laughs> yeah. murderous family. Uh, you mentioned Call You Mom. Yeah. Oedip- Oedipal themes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's more. Yeah, it's it's a great, it's, it's something that is so universal, I feel, uh, unless I'm just thinking of my own. Jewish, it might be Jewish bubble, um, <laughs> but then you think about like Sopranos. It's like an Italian thing with the mom. And I mean, flip sides of the same coin, Jordan. Actually, it's it's done so ambiguously, which makes it scary too. Kind of like I Palindromai, but like it seems like Tony's mom is conspiring to to murder mm. Tony, but it's done in this um, subtle language where you can't quite tell what she's saying. It's really interesting. And that has a whole like pillow in a hospital uh, bed thing too. I yeah. kind of think of Sopranos when I think of this song, actually. I was thinking of that movie where uh, Jeremy Irons kills his wife. Which I think she's that? a diabetic and she like, oh no, she wasn't a diabetic and he injects insulin into her. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. The I idea of the injecting of someone with something is a scary, very scary to me. I forget the that name happened of it. to me. I had a CAT scan the other day and they injected the contrast into me. And Why it, is it called a CAT scan, not a dog scan? You ever think of that? I do all every day. Actually, no, really. Why I is it called? The, a I asked the nurse, and she said, and "She's like, shut up." Yeah, no, it's funny. She's like, "There'll be no side effects." And then I spent two days with stomach pain. From oh, it. you're the only one that gets all the side <laughs> I effects. I know that's a thing about me that I hate about my body. Well, we can't choose our bodies, yeah. or can we? Well, I guess we can <laughs> these days. <laughs> I don't think this is one of the first batch of songs. But it was definitely, a, it probably was like one of the first of the second batch. The bass and drums, again, were straight from the sequencer. Um, I, I think I think, I think Flansburg played at the tambourine live over it. He overdubbed the tambourine. Uh, hmm. We mentioned, I actually mentioned that in our discussion about the song. Generally, Flans would do the, these percussion overdubs. He'd sometimes, he'd sometimes do cymbals. Like a lot of the oh, cymbals wow. were not from the sequencer. They'd be like him just hitting them. That's really interesting. Over, as, as an, an overdub. That was a very common thing about those days because... Sometimes it was a little more natural to sound a little more natural right. to add live cymbals. When they were promoting Apollo 18, Flansburg often, they often performed with Flansburg on a little drum set and Linnell on accordion. Like you, there's a bunch of talk, talk shows and TV shows where they, that's the setup they use rather than oh, Flans on guitar. And so I wonder if that 
those, what you're describing is like Flansburg is just getting really into percussion at that point. Cause I don't even know, I don't know if that happened before the Apollo 18 sessions. Oh, sure. It could come out, come out with working with Clive Langer and uh, Alan Winston Lee too. Cause you know, they work with these, these amazing producers on the last record. And when they're producing their new record, I'm sure they learned some tricks from those guys that they, they incorporated into, into this. Oh, but by the way, the, the, the organ in this is, is the real organ. The Magic Shop had this a great uh, Hammond B3 organ which was, was, which was one of the draws. A lot of people love the organ there. It's, it really sounded great. Would he just like know what he's going to do before recording or would he like try a bunch of ideas? Do you remember anything like that? I think more or less he, he knew what he wanted to do. I mean, I, sometimes, sometimes he'd do a, a second take <laughs> or so, but I mean, or punch something in. But most of the time he had an idea. I mean, he had already been, you know, workshopping the songs in, in MIDI form. So... Yeah, so it's just a matter of like, you know, we mic'd up the organ, he'd go in and do it. Because we, this is like one of their best songs, was there like some, does that like come into play in the feeling in the studio and do like, are they like, oh wow, this is... This has to be a single. Yeah, like is there a, is there a difference or are they all, are all the songs kind of, could they get that same level of excitement or, you know what I mean? I, th- I think in general for, for the, on their side... I mean, they have they like the song enough to spend time in the studio recording it. So, <laughs> but I mean, in, on my side of it, I mean, I could definitely tell there's a couple of songs. I could definitely like, oh, this, this is really catchy. I mean, a lot of the times, you know, I, we'd be working on the music long before we even I'd even hear any lyrics at all. Oh, so, wow. so it was just really about the, the, the you know, it would, you know, you could tell the songs are poppier. But then as soon as like Linnell would do the vocals on this one, it'd be like, oh yeah, this is like definitely a, a great one, a great one of the greater songs and and I'd be the song would be stuck in my head for for days and days afterwards. I can't imagine you're having to hear it a million times. Like you you might have heard these songs more than me just from <laughs> just from being right, there. Right. Not as much as the, the whoever mixed it because whoever, whoever mixed right. it probably spent, you know, a day yes. or half a day whatever. Can you remember if on a song like this for example where uh Flansburg does backups on a Linnell song is Linnell giving him any kind of coaching or saying you know telling him exactly what the backup should be or what was that process like I think it's a combination a combination of them I mean I think definitely definitely Linnell would definitely have input on that mm-hmm. uh, on the parts I mean Linnell when, you know often a lot of the other songs Linnell would do all the vocal parts himself. yeah <laughs> yeah but, but they'd always have input into each other's things mm-hmm. but it was never as far as I remember there was not wasn't a huge conversations it was just like Try this, and it worked, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Oh, the only other thing, other thing I, I'd say is the, the the strings in this one. There's these pizzicato string parts. Those were sequenced. Those those weren't uh, live things. There, those that was probably some of the samples they had. So uh, I pound your mind. Good song. One thing I wanted to, to mention before we continue. Shuffle um, off this mortal there, coil. There was apparently supposed to be a music video for this song, which is like, oh, what a tragedy mm. as, as a They Might Be Giants fan that it didn't happen. Um, this I learned from the from TMBW, of course. That was almost a pound. This I learned. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> this I learned. What? I don't know. I learned this. I learned this I learned. Oh, my God. This freaks me out. Okay. <laughs> so it says Linnell was was apparently, according to J. Otto Siebold, who you might know from the Istanbul video uh, art director guy, um, animator, uh, he, it was going to be Linnell walking in place on a treadmill in a Pied Piper outfit and with <laughs> two dogs as the squid and whale costumes. I mean, first of all, that sounds adorable. Adorable. <laughs> Linnell on a treadmill is great. 
for yeah. as a visual thing Perfect. for this song. I mean, th- they might be giants are great in their videos, and we're going to talk about this when we do a music video episode. Um, you know, it, visually representing the themes of the song without being too annoyingly mm-hmm. too uh, obvious about it. I think that that works. I'm I'm happy with that. <laughs> are you? <laughs> I'm happy. I'm very happy. So I pound your my. I think one of the. I feel like one of. I don't mean this in a bad way, but like one of the last classic amazing mm-hmm. album openers that are kind of iconic for the band not that i don't love other uh, songs coming up on their albums but there's something really special about this it was one ambitious is a big one yeah there's just something like particularly incredible about this as an, as a storytelling thing one of the best songs ever it certainly makes apollo 18 a classic album uh, almost single-handedly and now track three on Apollo 18, so many numbers. <laughs> she, thank you. For, <laughs> I don't even know why I laughed. Yeah, that. me neither. Uh, she's actual <laughs> size. Thank you to Brooklyn. Words fail. Buildings tumble. The ground opens wide. Light beams down from heaven. She stands before my eyes. She's actual size, but she seems much bigger to me. Squares may look distant in a rear view mirror, but they're actual She's size. She's actual size. Real drums on this one. Real drums, which is a shock. I, for years, assumed it was a drum machine. Hmm. I don't know why. It's not like it sounds like it, but it, but it, it has the same um, production quality maybe the reverb as the fake ones yeah the reverb and stuff it's so let's talk about the real drums a bit it's jim thomas from the ordinaires and the ordinaires is a important band they did they worked on kiss me son of god yeah and kurt hoffman is in the yeah. ordinaires and they collaborated with them a, a few times uh let's listen to a song from the ordinaires to hear jim's is it jim playing drums yes it is this song is called Melda. That was the closest to she's actual size drums yeah. I could find in the Ordinaires catalog. Usually it's like kind, kind of a rock beat. That's more jazzy. Kind of jazzy, kind of marching, Snazzy. like a marching band marching through town. So so Jim Thomas on drums, he, do, he does a great job. Though I really, I do think, you know, the production of it, 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 it kind of, okay, let's talk about this. Flansburg has said he does not like the production mm-hmm. of this track. And I, I kind of understand because kind of what I was saying about Apollo 18 is it, it it has a small feel to me, even though they say they got a Marshall amp and all these big horns and new horn, new saxophones. There is there is a, a quality to this album, and I think it is the reverb, mm. which is that things seem a little they're not as in your face on this album as, mm. as on their other albums. And I feel like this is a song that needs to be in your face. This song didn't explode as much as it should have. Yeah, didn't, yeah, didn't pop off. Yeah, it seems it is seem, does seem like a very fussy arrangement with the horns, whereas I feel like something a little more. I think the fact so there is a quote about this song. Someone on their their website, uh, their Tumblr, asked how they do the horns on their on their albums, like who plans that out. And Flansburg said uh, she's actual size was put together by John Linnell. Yeah, and he plays all the horns on it. I feel like having an actual 
a multi-person horn band being recorded. Is that the, what they're called? Horn bands? Um, yeah, multi-person horn band. Sure. I think that would have added some organic, you know, the different like personalities. Yeah. The three different people doing, making a chord yeah. of horns. Yes, and, and they they're not it? perfectly in sync, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I think I think that would have maybe helped. I also think a lot of it is the production, the reverb, and, you know, and Flansburg's vocals are very, like, he's definitely doing some sort of a character with his vocals here. A bit, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's kind of singing in a low, low octave way, like, you know, big men, yeah. which I love. I love his singing on the song. That's sort of his noir yeah storyteller kind that's of true style but yeah but it's it's not it's not what you want to do if you want like energy and like excitement. i thought reverb is supposed to make things sound bigger i know that's the weird thing is sometimes it, it has a weird opposite effect i, I really struggle with reverb in my uh, own my own what mixes. a conundrum yeah so wait dave what do you think ah. what do you think about she's actual size i think it's about uh sex <laughs> <laughs> i just meant you like it oh yeah i like it <laughs> Uh, I like it. I it it's very reminiscent of uh, "Lie Still Little Bottle" to me. Yeah, this is kind of this album's "Lie Still Little yeah, Bottle," which has also had real drums. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's a style that Flansburg likes to, you know, a well that he likes to go to from time to yeah, time. Yeah, like not rock, but like other things <laughs> that are still energetic and fun, like like jazz and well, big, like I said, very band. noir, very yeah. atmospheric. Yes. Very storyteller style. I like it a lot. Uh, what do you think of it? <laughs> yeah, I've always liked it. It's never been like one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. I, it's funny because I think for this album, Flansburg's Flansburg songs are the highlight for me, weirdly, but not mm -hmm. not super this one though. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a song I, I like, and I think it's it has a good place as track three, but it's not like a personal favorite. Uh, they might be Giants song. I think it is more powerful live. I mean, I know yeah. we were going to get into that. We, yeah, we will. Uh, We're going to explore the live episode. versions of the song another time. Because it's kind of a different song live. Yes. Yes, it is. There's a few songs on this album that transformed live mm. into something totally new. I wanted to say, so something that Flansburg said the song was based on is that he said there's a country western song that talks about seeing someone going away in a rearview mirror. I thought that was a really succinct way of talking about leaving somebody behind. It turned into kind of a brag song about a woman who leaves everyone behind by the virtue of being super cool, so happening that they're intimidating. Yeah. Um, I tried, We all know women like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tried to find the, the country song in question, and I came up with nothing, which is weird because I thought it was... That is weird. I thought it'd be a cliche that'd be easy to find. And there's certainly a lot of country songs that mention a rearview mirror. This was love of Texas in my rearview mirror. Today in my rearview mirror, I saw an old Malibu girl. I thought it was you. Maybe he was thinking of a meatloaf song. Objects in the rearview mirror They appear closer than they are And objects in the rearview mirror They appear closer than they are And objects in the rearview mirror They 
But yeah, the Texas one is like sort of about leaving your state, leaving your town, going to new things. I couldn't find one that was about sort of a wistful saying goodbye to somebody and seeing them for the last time in a, in a rear view Maybe he mirror. meant his own song, Lucky Ball and Chain. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it must have been some obscure thing he heard on the radio or a, a vinyl he had or something. I really I really tried to find it. If you know what it is... I was going to say, maybe one of our listeners can uh, yes. do some damn work for once. Please help us. <laughs> uh, email us at don'tletstartpodcast at gmail.com. That's what it's for. If you for. know what song this is referencing... He's talked about it live a few times. We can listen to some of those clips. Yes, please. Good evening. Were they my vaginas from Brooklyn, New York? Welcome to our uh, transcontinental transmission. Uh, this song is about scale and sexuality and uh, relationships, that kind of thing. Words fail, buildings tumble, the ground opens wide. Told you. Yeah, scale and sexuality. Uh, that, <laughs> together again for the yeah, first time <laughs> that that sums it up for me um i have to two great tastes finally. i have to say though that the story of the song i think was brilliantly kind of sussed out by again by chris stengel on the old news group he's the first one i've ever seen mm-hmm. uh posit that it's about a bank robber woman yeah like a bonnie and clyde the bonnie in the bonnie and clyde type and there the few hints about this is She's got all the money money couldn't buy, Mm -hmm. meaning like, what would that mean? It would mean she's got money that you can't really use because it's like stolen and people will find out. And her face hangs in portrait on the post office wall, which means it's like a criminal, right? Yeah, but I mean, I thought of that too. Yeah, well, I'm talking about when I was like 15 and I didn't... Fair enough. Well, see, no one on the news group, um, again, going back to the news group days, because it's kind of it's kind of like my reference point for a lot of these uh, song discussions. It's like no one had said that mm-hmm. and no one had thought of that. I really think there's like the story of the song might be that it's about a criminal and mm-hmm. there is something there is something super cool about criminals in a way that yeah, you might not want to admit. Especially if they're sexy babes. Yeah, exactly. Like Carmen Sandiego. Yeah, the song's basically about Carmen Sandiego. Um, Always had a thing for her. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, we can explore that in a... Mickey and Mallory. I guess that's a little episode. too disturbing. Uh, but yeah, there is a, a sex... Although you never really saw her face, right? She could Carmen have, Sandiego? Yeah. It was mostly just like her, her mouth and her uh, hat, yeah, right? she might have weird eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Big men often tremble as they step aside. I thought... I was big once, she changed my mind. She's actual size, but she seems much bigger to me. I've never known anybody like her. She's actual size nationwide. Uh, well, we should talk about the intro, which I always thought was interesting. I think it's Flansburg. I think so too. Saying, we take you to Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, for a while, the lyrics, people thought it said inspector to Brooklyn, but it's definitely we take you to Brooklyn. I thought it said something like J train to Brooklyn or something like that. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> J train. I used to live a block from the J train. So one interesting thing, similar to dig my grave when they did this song at their special Apollo 18 show, it's the only time I've ever heard them do the intro like oh. on the album. Cause they usually, interesting. they usually the song, like we said, the song's a totally new thing live, but this seemed like an attempt to do the song. And you'll hear Flansburg. He's also bantering about wanting a Coke uh, or something, wanting a Coca-Cola. It's kind of hard to hear, but check out this, uh, this version of it. 
take the bar and smack out through the hallway. I get my Coca Cola. You take it, my Coca Cola. Words Buildings tumble. Yeah, so that's kind of, cr- it's almost, <laughs> I was actually shocked to hear that because I'm just so used to them not doing that live or not acknowledging that that's how the album is. It's also kind of a creepy opening. Yeah, it's weird. I don't quite, so the only thing I can think of is if this is about like a bank robber, it, it, you get a sense of like, this is a news broadcast saying we take you to right. Brooklyn. It's like, did she just rob a bank? Like, are we, and it is film noirish. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a crime. There's, the song to me, it's kind of like she was a hotel I detective. I was say that. Boom. Gosh. Chicka boom. Darn it. Yeah. I feel like it's very appropriate actually to be like, we're in the midst of a, of a happening, you know, of a, of a criminal like right now, baby. happening. <laughs> oh yeah. Now is happening now. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to go through some specific looks. I love the imagery Right. Well, like it, it does kind of, and I, this also goes with what I said about that Flansburg has a lot of songs, this album about having, getting, having a new crush on someone. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it times out to be literally Robin, his wife, Robin Quivers, Robin Goldwasser, Robin Goldwasser. but I get the feeling that this is a transitional time where he's ending one relationship and yeah. interested in a new relationship. And sometimes that overlaps, which is a weird uh, thing in life, but it does happen. It's never happened to me. I always have years and years between <laughs> girlfriends. Oh, it happened to me. Yeah, yeah. But um, words fail, buildings tumble, the ground opens wide, light beams down from heaven. Like that's, yeah. this is like a biblical experience of, of seeing a, a, you know, someone you have a crush on for the first time. It's right. like love at first sight in a way. But it's also scary. Like buildings tumbling is scary. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's really captures that You feeling. let them in? Should you let them in? You'd be vulnerable. Yeah. Buildings. That's, that's basically what the whole song's about. She seems much bigger. She's actual size, meaning like she's a normal woman. She's unattainable. But she's yeah, so she's cool. big. She's big. She's like the windmills, right? Yeah. And then there's the, the squares may look distant in her rearview mirror line, which is just like this thing that everyone, everyone sees that on their mirror. Like <laughs> at least growing up, I did like, you know, yeah. in the nineties. I love that they put these kind of, I know it's not specific to New York, but it just always reminds me of like my life in New York City and all these things, you know, mm-hmm. like they put those into the lyrics. These things from like my childhood that I remember, you know, and from theirs too, probably. I like the line, I thought I was big once she changed my mind. There's nothing like yeah. a woman that can go toe to toe with you to <laughs> yeah. make you realize you're not as hot. It's almost as like a sequel to the biggest one. It's <laughs> like, right. I'm not the biggest one. She's the biggest one. Right, right. <laughs> But that's also, it's also kind of good to have that counterbalance in your life. Someone that you can, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's different kinds of, there's different kinds of crushes. Cause I've gotten crushes on girls strictly from how attractive I think they are. Like she's just so cute, Mm -hmm. but I've also had crushes on girls that were like so cool where I was like, oh my God, I just like my, I had a high school crush that just seemed like such a cool girl that I was like, I'm such a nerd compared to her. I made her, they might be Chinese mixtape. That was your first mistake. (laughs) Yeah. But like a lot of it was, it wasn't so much physical as it was just like, oh, she seems so like not swayed by things Mm. or not, you know, like she just seems like this cool girl has all these cool friends, you know, probably bad influence uh, would have been a bad influence on me. And then there was a girl who had a crush on me who was very not cool and, you know, I didn't like her back and it was a whole mess, you know, and they, the two of those two girls were friends. It was a big mess. Sounds like an episode of Riverdale. Yeah, it was. 
they called I me assume. up. I assume. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, she's got something special that someone left behind. Really seems like she stole. She stole right. stuff, right? It is interesting to use bank robber as metaphor for a new love interest and someone that you can't quite attain. Yeah, exactly. And someone that everyone... Like, uh, Charlie from High Fidelity. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, it's someone that everyone wants, whether that's the police who want to arrest her or right. it's like, it's it's a metaphor for like, everyone wants this. There's like a David Byrne song I love called Everyone's in Love With You about when you like a, a girl or a woman that, or it could be anyone. <laughs> or right? a woman. Yeah. Or, or a lady who like everyone also likes. So it's kind of, you feel just like, oh, why am I so special? You know, it, it kind of reminds me of that. Like this is a song about a, a woman who is wanted by everybody. And you can take that in every, any meaning Literally. you want. Right. And it's just like, I feel so small. Cause like, why is my wanting of her stand out from anyone else? Why would she notice me? You know, she wouldn't. Exactly. You're scum. <laughs> But yeah, to, to me, the song, it, it, it's more further cements like Flansburg's Sinatra love. Like this this could be a Sinatra song mm -hmm. in, in another dimension, right? I do really like the quality of his voice. I also love like, I noticed like it seems super dry, but there is mm -hmm. like a really subtle reverb under it. And it's actually cool to listen to. It's like a nice reverb. Whereas like I Pound Jermai, the vocals have tons of reverb. It just shows you, I find it interesting there are some albums that bands have where every song is mixed basically the same. Mm -hmm. And then there's, they might be giants who do this thing where it's like, whatever the song needs, we're yeah. going to do. So like the reverb on I Palindrome Mai's vocals kind of gives the song this epic feel. Whereas like the, the intimacy of she's actual size with a really subtle reverb under it, it kind of gives it like, it's just the sense that you're right into the microphone. You're right in someone's face and you're, it's kind of gives like a singer songwriter thing. Like, you're in a know. smoky club and a guy's telling you a story. She's got all the money money couldn't buy. She's got something special that someone left behind. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a little bit of a small smaller scale. I think the style of the song emphasizes the story in the song, which is that you're being this cool jazz cat who's like, who's like kind of telling a cool story to your audience yeah. about like this cool girl, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, two, it's sort of the same topic as like two tall girl, yeah. which is weird. <laughs> it's extremely similar. And I guess we'll get to that in, in many episodes when we talk about that song, but it's the same idea. It's like a girl that's just, you know, it's like in Seinfeld, George really wants, he wants to date a, an Amazon or whatever, right? What was it? You remember these things. Really tall. That he could climb or something. Like over six feet. Yeah, yeah. I think we all relate to that, right? <laughs> yes. She's actual size. This is obviously the one uh, song with a live drummer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Jim Thomas, as you know, um, but I think I think it, it it started the same way as all the other songs. You know, there was a sequence. You know, probably ah. not as fancy. It's a very simple sequenced drum and bass. Mm -hmm. That sample at the very beginning was part of the original sequence they brought in. So that when he says, "We take you to Brooklyn,", you to Brooklyn yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So that was already there. So they have that, but the thing is, but I think he had like probably the simplest of, you know, because I don't. He he definitely didn't do the drums until later. The drums were overdubbed probably after he had already done the vocals and uh, 
there was obviously something that Linnell was playing to because he played like, you know, three or four sax parts. But they probably put that all together and then they had Jim come in and, and do the drums last. Mm. So he was he was sort of playing, probably playing to a click or whatever, you know, whatever track they had mm-hmm. and to whatever they laid down on top of that. So, again, this was not one of the first... Uh, you know, sessions, it was probably either the second or, th- it was probably the second session, I'd say. The only MIDI is the, so there's piano on the song and, and a few little parts. Like, uh, like in the beginning, there's piano. Was that, that wasn't real piano at the magic shop, you think? No, or? I don't think so. We had a piano there, but it was not like, it was, it was a baby grand and it wasn't mm-hmm. like the, the best piano. I mean, I think a few, there are a few times on the record where you'll hear it, but most of the time, like, like this was kind of just like that one of the high note, the ding. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. That was a that, few things. I mean, that 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 might have been overdubbed, but I mean, I think they they had some piano, you know, in in the sequence. But uh, I mean, this is kind of a, like you know, I think the the reference to this is kind of like one of those big bands, mm-hmm. n- glitzy nightclub type things, and that's what they're going for. And and then it just has you know all of Linnell's saxophone things, which he arranged and figured out based on what was written. It's a really interesting lead vocal. Do, do you remember anything about... Yeah, I think he was trying to go for that, you know, that you know that guy who sings in front of the big band. I, again, I know this is a long time ago, but like anything where it's like you're seeing him kind of like figure out that voice or is that, or you think that's already figured out even before he gets to the studio in a demo or... Some of it. I mean, I'll tell you there's a song later where okay. he did an overdub voice, which was very much, we had to do a bunch of them until he got it the way he wanted to. Ah. But I mean... I've I've always wished to be a fly on the wall and like see them come up with these voices and like sure. what, what works, what doesn't work on a song. With them, I don't I don't think being a fly on the wall is, works. You literally have to be a fly in their brain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a like good way that. to put it. That's the name of the episode. <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. Like, because the thing is, it's not like you're all, you're in there. You know, you you you've been in, in sat in sessions, I'm sure, and it's yeah. not like they're having conversations. He's like he does it, and then he goes like. Mm, let me try another one, mm-hmm. and then you know, and they they put it together. Yeah, that was, it was it was pretty straight ahead. It was like you know, you know, sequence sax parts. Before we move on, I just have one more thing about the song, which is that in in the in future interviews, Flansworth has said he was disappointed how the song came out on the album. Really, hmm, and he he said it sounded like a demo in his opinion. And wow, if, if you com- yeah, it's, if you compare it to, I'm sure there's no uh, comment on you anything you did on it, but like. If you compare it to live versions, you sort of see what he means because live it just explodes. It's this. It really is. It's more like, improvisational, and and then if you listen to a live version, then listen to the album version. It's like, oh, it is kind of like a demo compared to that. Well, well you know what? It, I mean, the, it probably is because it was a sequence and it was it was it was a click and it was a set tempo. Mm-hmm. Whereas live, the drummer could definitely speed up or slow down. You don't remember any um, fr- frustration on his part? It was like, oh, it's not coming together. Or you do you, you think they, he was happy at the time? Not at all. I don't. I mean, in general, I don't. I don't remember anything really like in that sense of any of the songs. So look, that was She's Actual Size. It sure was. And it is a great song. I didn't mean to undersell it. Uh, I especially, I love, I love its sequence on the album. You know, I think it's in the right spot. Um, it's but, a good bridge. But I feel like the the power pop of stuff like I Pound Your My and then a couple other songs coming up, they do... It, it makes his actual size a bit of an oddball on this album. Well, my evil twin right after this one oh. is like a real poppy, catchy number too. So those were the first three songs. We made it to three songs. That's not bad. Yeah, plus all that information about the album in the beginning. Yeah, wow. It's pretty we, good. All this for free, people. We, we should pat ourselves on the back. Special thanks again to Ed Douglas. 
the Edward second Douglas. engineer on Apollo 18. <laughs> yeah, he's called Ed- Edward Douglas the fourth in the liner notes. Thank you to Ed for his extra information that he gave us. He'll be joining us in the next bunch of episodes about Apollo 18. He'll have a lot more to say coming up. I am extremely excited to get into the next few songs on this album, which will be soon. We're going to record more very, very soon. Apollo 18 is one of my favorite albums of all time. I don't know if I made that clear, actually. It's it's a huge one for me. I mean, it's sometimes it's like my favorite They Might Be Giants album. Mm-hmm. So, like, usually when I'm listening to it, I'm like, oh, my God. It's a good one. It's so great. There's a lot to talk about, and I love how a lot of things in it tie together. So... Come back for Apollo 18 part two. We are Don't Let's Start a Podcast About They Might Be Giants. Tell your friends. Give us a review on iTunes. I love reading those. They're so nice to read. Uh, don't Let's Start Podcast at gmail.com. The Twitter is at Don't Let's Pod. And please check out our new YouTube channel because I'm... I'm making it extra special, the, the videos of our song segments. I know it's, it's audio you've heard, but there's a lot of <laughs> new material in terms of the clips and the video stuff and other things. And I did a few extra little bits that are subtle that weren't in originally in the episodes. Uh, I try to find those. YouTube.com slash uh, don't let start. Uh, I believe that goes right there. So nice. Nice, right? So goodbye from Don't Let's Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants. I can't wait for the next episode. My sentiments exactly, you son of a bitch. Someday mother will die and I'll get the money. Bob leads down and says my sentiments exactly. You son of a bitch, I palindrome, I, I palindrome. Bulletproof just hanging from the clothesline See the medical chart with the random zigzag Now I'll help you decide I palindrome I I palindrome I And I am a snake head eating the head on the opposite side I palindrome I I palindrome I I palindrome I I palindrome I Son I am able She said though you scare me Watch said I Beloved I said watch me scare you though Said she hey boo